Please, don't be alarmed. We're not going to harm anyone. We're mutants. We're not what you think. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain? They have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. There are forces in this world who believe that a war is coming. We're here to stay. The next move is yours. We'll be watching. Hang on to something. Welcome to Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series. Welcome to Mutant High. Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. You talk pretty tough for a guy in a cape. Hosted by Jacob. You and I are going to be good friends. You just don't know it yet. Stuart. He's fascinating. He's a pain in the ass. And Arnie. Patience isn't my strongest suit. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new movie review. Who will you stand with? The humans or us? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Let's do this. Today we're discussing X-Men, Days of Future Past, starring Hugh Jackman, James McAvoy, Patrick Stewart, Michael Fassbender, Ian McKellen, Jennifer Lawrence, Halle Berry, Anna Paquin, Ella Page, Nicholas Holt, Kelsey Grammer, Peter Dinklage, Sean Asmore, Omar Sy, Daniel Cudmore, Evan Peters, Fan Bingbing, I love that name, Aiden Canto, Boo Boo Stewart, Josh Hellman, Lucas Till, and Mark Camacho, directed by Brian Singer. <gasps> Did you get that X-Men in the background, that actor? <laughs> There is no professor here, just me, Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is the host that would use any superpower to only steal hostess cupcakes, Twinkies, and ding-dongs, Jacob. And we are back in the X franchise. It seems like not so long ago we were here with the Wolverine. Oh yeah, I kind of forgot about that one. It was alright. I was thinking more about First Class. That's what I wanted the sequel to. That's the X franchise I wanted to continue. And I guess we kind of get it here, and we kind of get the old one, and of course we get a lot more Wolverine. They were in a precarious bind, I think. What are you making a sequel to? Is this a continuation of the movie last year? Is this a continuation of First Class? Or is this uh, writing the wrongs that were done by Brett Ratner back in 2006? Well, this had an interesting and lengthy production history. I mean, if you go back and listen to our first class review, we end saying that they were already saying two years later would be a follow-up directed by Matthew Vaughn continuing the first class adventures. But when it came out, X-Men First Class was the lowest grossing X-Men film to date, and then the Wolverine bested it for even lower. Except with International, Wolverine actually did do better. Right, domestically. Yeah. Sad that the best X-Men film did the worst. Not not just the best X-Men film. You know, I mentioned on the Winter Soldier review, I was trying to think that did I have a top ten of the best superhero movies of all time. You know where First Class wound up? Number two. That was my second favorite superhero movie of all time. So, yeah, I think it's a great film. I think that and Dark Knight are two movies, even if you hate superhero movies, you should see it. They're good. And I completely agree. I can't remember exactly what I said when First Class came out and we did that weekend of release review, but it has become one of my all-time favorite superhero films and is definitely my favorite X film. And so the fact that just a lot of people didn't see it kind of makes me think people are seeing the wrong movies because that one was great. 
Well, you know what it is. I mean, I'm just going to call it out. Every time I would bring it up, I'm like, did you see the new X-Men movie? You know, I'd talk with people and, and they'd be like, yeah. And then I'd be like, Wolverine, right? Wolverine, yes. And that was always the holdout was it's not an X-Men movie without Hugh Jackman. And I think that people just need Wolverine slash Hugh Jackman to be in the film fully featured for them to want to embrace it. Well, I think that there was a reaction to that and trying to figure out what to do, but they still were planning to do a first-class sequel. But then Fox heads came in and said, what if we bookended it and brought in Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen and just had them be like, remember the time we had this adventure? And then production got delayed because Jennifer Lawrence exploded and her contract for Hunger Games made her unavailable. So they had to put an extra year before they could even begin this. And then things got really crazy because Brian Singer was producing this. And I think he started taking a little bit more and more control as he's like, let's get all our old friends back together again. And Halle Berry, who hated him, but brought her back. And finally, Matthew Vaughn, who is... Also in my top list of directors, I think he made First Class what it was and Kick-Ass what it was, said, this isn't my movie anymore, I'm going to go make a different Fox movie. Coming up this October, we'll be reviewing The Kingsman, and Singer is back in the chair for the first time since X2. Yeah, there's also another huge elephant in the room here, and it's called Avengers. Avengers up the game. I don't know that any solo superhero movie can compete or matter anymore. I mean, I think what happened with Amazing Spider-Man 2 is somewhat reflective of the fact that people want to see super teams. It's not enough to have a Wolverine movie. You need to have Wolverine, the old X-Cast, the new X-Cast. Maybe Fantastic Four is going to show up here. (laughs) I feel like the mentality now is we need to build empires, armies of characters that people love in order to make the new movies worth the $20 admission. I mean, even DC's getting in on this game. Their next film, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Like, yeah, (laughs) that's the real title. That's the real title, guys. I'm not making that up. And the thing is, maybe I'm getting superhero fatigue, which is weird as the comic guy. I go to buy my ticket for this film, and I'm like, oh, wait, Winter Soldier? No, that's not the one I'm doing. Uh, Spider-Man? No, no, that's not. There were three comic book films on the screen when I had to pick my ticket. All Marvel. Yeah, I don't know if that's ever happened before. I mean, and soon we'll have Guardians of the Galaxy later this summer. I I don't know if I need a big explosive. I don't mind those smaller character-driven stories, but I get what you're saying. When, when you're going for a mass audience... You go to the film that has Wolverine and Cyclops and all the characters you know. I, I, I think to get more people in the seats, that's what you're going to do. you, you got to have the most mass appeal. I don't know if that's the best thing. I guess we'll be discussing that throughout this film. But there's definitely an Avengers bump in not only the audience expectations, but studio expectations because... Brian Singer said he did not come out to make X-Men Days of Future Past an Avengers film. He didn't even think the Avengers was comparable because he saw X-Men as basically one hero because they were one comic book, not a whole bunch of comic books coming together. But that said, he readily admitted that when he was going to the studio and asking them to write checks, he would happily say, but it's like Avengers in. And yeah, this is Fox's second most expensive movie ever. Only Avatar cost more than Days of Future Past. 
Right, and Last Stand was, at the time of its release, the most expensive Fox movie. Yeah, they load up. When it comes to making an X film, I believe Fox shows the money. And yes, I believe the template is we have to make Avengers money with this. We have to compete. We're never giving these character rights up. So we have to make what we have as profitable and as well-loved as what they got over at Marvel Studios. I get what you're saying, though. Singer, if he needs to have the studio write a check, he's going to compare it to the Avengers. But th- these X-Men, this is like not just the Avengers versus Loki. This is the Avengers versus Avengers. There's two teams made up of multiple characters. I'll say that this worked for me. I don't know where your guys' expectations were coming into this, but when the year started and I looked at how many comic book movies were on the rock. Guardians of the Galaxy, Spider-Man, Captain America. This movie was the one that had me the most hyped. I underestimated Captain America, too, truthfully. But this movie was the one I was looking forward to. First of all, because, yes, X-Men First Class is one of my all-time favorite films. And second, because it was this mashup of old and new and bringing back characters that hadn't been on the screen in an X-Men film in almost a decade. I mean, this really had the hype meter high for me. I was out there reading all of the websites and seeing everything that was going on and trying to really follow this one. This had my eye. I didn't follow this at all. To me, the X-Franchise is the most reliable. That's the way that I think of it. When I see the X-Men movies, most of the time, I've given them a green arrow. Now, some are better than others, and First Class is, I think, an aberration. I mean, it was way better than it probably should have been. But I just kind of looked at this as like, oh, another X-Men movie, just like last year, and I'll probably enjoy it. But hyped? No, I wasn't hyped. I just didn't know what the story was going to be. I came into this just going, I know who these characters are. Let's hope they still got the magic. This one, middle of the road, I... I wanted more of that first class. And so I think, I think I went into this a little upset that they're trying to mash the two up. Uh, you know what? Singer's vision, it's dead. Ratner's, that's dead as two. That, that was an extension of Singer's. I wanted this new vision. I wanted more stuff in the sixties or seventies. And so I, I was hesitant because they were trying to combine these two. <laughs> it's the same franchise, but these two different visions of that franchise. I didn't know how that would work and I didn't know if it would work. But regardless, I paid top ticket price. I went to my favorite movie screen in L.A. and paid the Cinemark $20 premium to see it in 3D, big screen. They can't call it IMAX anymore, but it was comparable. It was Well, you have to be happy because this wasn't released on IMAX format. I went to try to find an IMAX showing. This one, Godzilla had all the IMAX screens. Ah, okay. Well, I went to a screen that used to be IMAX, and now it's called Cinemark's Extreme. XD, yes. That's what I see it on. I I don't know what it was, but it it felt like an IMAX. But it didn't feel like a 3D movie. I'll go ahead and shout out. I'm usually kind of in between on 3D anyway. This is one of the lesser 3D experiences. I don't think you need to see it in 3D format. Jacob, I'm going to have to turn to you. Is it worth 3D? Because I wouldn't know. I've seen this movie twice. Stuart, on our Amazing Spider-Man podcast, you were hyping the real D experience of Springfield, Illinois. (laughs) Well, I went to this in real D since it wasn't in IMAX and had, (laughs) I called it in a tweet, the worst movie viewing experience of my life. I did use a little hyperbole. There was one worse when I saw Annie in theaters in 1980 and the power went out in the second reel. Other than that... You can go all the way back to 1980 for a worst experience. And that might be a godsend considering it was Annie. Other than that, this was the worst movie viewing experience of my life because 
mostly of the 3D. They had the projector miscalibrated. Everybody was running out of the theater when the movie started saying our glasses were bad. And they said, your glasses are fine. Go watch your movie. <laughs> so we all sat there. And the more 3D it got, the more it looked like I wasn't wearing glasses. All the subtitles were ghosting. The scene where Mystique points the gun and it's supposed to come out at the audience. She had two guns on the screen that I saw. <laughs> Wait, were you red and blue? Were they blue and blue or red and red for your glasses? <laughs> you didn't see it in 3D. You saw it with beer goggles. <laughs> it was miserable. And I was like, I need to go back and see the movie. So I tweeted this. <laughs> AMC was like, oh, no, come see it on us. We fixed it. And the other thing I should add is I felt I was in the movie. Not because of 3D. The projector was shining down on me. I could hold my hand up it, <laughs> below the chair in front of me and read the credits on my skin. You do shadow puppets up on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> the top of the screen, a foot of it was black. No one complained. They didn't like stop it and restart the whole thing. That seems weird. No, I called the manager the next day before I went to Twitter and the manager's like, there's nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing wrong. There's a reflection that comes off the screen. If you sit in certain seats, that's what you were seeing. I'm like, no, I, I see a lot of freaking movies in your theater. So I tweeted to AMC. They had a technician go. When I go in, the manager's all apologies and goes, you know what happened? I don't know how. We had to reboot the computer and now it's fixed. What was supposed to be in front was going back and what was supposed to be in back was coming forward. So it was like I was watching the movie in a vortex. Wow. It was D3 instead of 3D. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I, I was going to see it in 2D thinking I'll just see the movie and I don't trust these guys. But they assured me it was free. I wasn't going to pay the 3D price twice for that crap. And they assured me it was better. So I went to the same freaking, not just the same theater as in building, but the same screen in that theater. It was better. Still had a lot of freaking ghosting issues. So is the 3D good? There's a couple scenes that looked good when Storm shooting lightning and the X jets behind her. I'm like, I bet on a good screen that would look great. But Jacob, you got to tell me. I, I can't tell you. I saw this in 2D. I, I figured one of you had seen it in 3D and only one of us did. <laughs> you tried twice, though. Good effort. I think you've locked out, Jacob. I think the experience is nominally enhanced by dimensionality. Yeah, maybe one or two scenes, one or two moments. But overall, I don't think that it has a depth kind of uh, perspective to the way they shot it. Well, Arnie, why don't you tell us what you attempted to see then with a plot summary? In the year 2023, Earth is a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Governments around the world, fearing mutant prevalence, have commissioned giant mutant hunting robots called Sentinels. And those robots have hunted and killed mutants, humans whose genes can produce mutant offspring, and even mutant sympathizing humans. A group of X-Men live in China, hiding, trying to fight against the Sentinels. Among these X-Men are psychic Charles Xavier, his former enemy Magneto, and the immortal steel-clawed warrior Wolverine. And weather goddess Storm, and there's others we'll talk about. And there's also Kitty Pride, who's the reason they're all still alive. Last time we saw Kitty Pride, she could only walk through walls, but now she has the ability to project someone's consciousness back in time into their younger body. And due to this power, Professor X has hatched a plan to send someone back to 1973 when the entire Sentinel program began. See, as Patrick Stewart happily espouses, in the 70s, a scientist and weapon maker, Bolivar Trask, played by Peter Dinklage, was researching, killing, and experimenting on mutants. Shapeshifting mutant Mystique finds out about this and sets out to kill the little person. 
Trask's death leads to the approval of the Sentinel program, and Mystique's DNA is the key to the unstoppable Sentinels that can change forms to respond to attack. Now, the strain of traveling 50 years back in time would break anyone's mind, except self-healing Wolverine, who also happens to be the franchise's biggest star, luckily. So he's the one sent back to reconnect to young Charles Xavier in his youth and Magneto, so the two can convince Mystique not to kill Trask. But the task is made more complex. Xavier, shot in the back and paralyzed in the last film, has been using a drug that mutes his psychic powers but allows him to walk. Magneto, meanwhile, is deep underground in a prison in the Pentagon, arrested for the assassination of Kennedy, explaining the magic bullet theory. Wolverine is able to get the band back together, but not make them get along as an uneasy truce is broken when Magneto chooses to skip trying to reason with Mystique and instead just kill her to ensure survival of the mutant race. They do succeed in keeping Trask alive on that day, but the mutant attack convinces President Nixon to proceed with the Sentinel program. And at a ceremony unveiling the 20-foot droids, Mystique again tries to kill Trask, while Magneto comes to take control of the Sentinels and kill the President and his cabinet as a preemptive strike. When Wolverine attacks, Magneto impales him with rebar and throws him to the bottom of the Potomac. Meanwhile, in the future, Sentinels find Xavier's base and start to invade, making Kitty Pride risk losing her concentration and pulling Wolverine back into the future. But Mystique never wanted the whole cabinet killed, just Trask, so she stops Eric. Then Xavier pleads with Mystique not to kill Trask, but leaves the choice in her hands. She chooses to let the man live, though he is arrested for leaking military secrets to foreign powers, and Mystique's choice makes for a positive future, as Wolverine awakes in a new 2020, one where Jean Grey and Cyclops are still alive, Rogue still has her powers, and Logan is a history teacher, but he has no idea of what happened in the past 50 years or so, so Xavier sits down to tell him. While in the past, Mystique, posing as military Major Striker, leads a team to retrieve Wolverine's body from the water as credits roll. Which leads to a crazy end credit sequence that Jacob has to explain to me. Because... We must be in real trouble if you don't get it, Arnie. Usually you're pretty up on your comic book stuff. I know, but I had to go to the internet for Captain America 2, and here I'm like, who's this scrawny female? It's not a female, but we'll get there. Before we get into this movie, though, there's something I think if we address it now, we don't ever have to address it later. Continuity in the X franchise. Oh, man, because I got a lot, and I know you rewatched all these X films. I saw you tweeting and posting on Facebook about it. I did, too. I felt like I needed to. I was afraid, even though I saw them all, what, I guess in 2011 we did that whole franchise? I felt like if I didn't see the ones that I liked again... I would be lost here. So I did. I saw X, X2, Last Stand. I skipped Origins. I'm never watching that again. (laughs) But First Class again and a little bit of the Wolverine. I didn't finish it, but enough to get a flavor. Though you may have wanted to watch Origins. That's the one I think I have the most continuity issues with. Yes, indeed. I was really glad I rewatched Origins as also as the lone person here to give that a green arrow. (laughs) But when the Wolverine came out, they came out with this box set with a giant Wolverine claw replica. And for a change, I did didn't just buy the replica, I actually watched all the discs leading up to this. And I realized that First Class had some continuity issues with the previous movies, but in watching all these films back to back, all of these films have so many continuity issues that 
I'm thinking, whereas Marvel Studios is sitting there, you know, intricately tinkering with everything so everything fits and leads into something else, and while we may have a weird end credit scene here or there, like Robert Downey Jr. showing up with General Ross in a movie that's mostly disavowed anymore, I think Fox is like, screw the geeks. We don't need continuity. Why is Professor X alive when he's dead in X3? We don't need to explain that. Yeah, okay. Which is weird. Here's my problem. This is why I got hung up on continuity. This ain't going to be anyone's first X-Men film. If it is, sorry. Have fun trying to figure it out. You're not. There's enough exposition that I could tell what was here for the first-timers, especially from Kitty and Professor X in the early scenes. I agree. There's stuff here for the first-timers, but good luck. I don't think this is friendly to first-timers. They try. They try, but there's just too much going on. So if you're going to do something this heavy, like, that was my biggest problem. Like, Xavier's back. Now, I know if you watched after all the credits and The Last Stand, what, some comatose body speaks with his voice? I guess that's the reason. Or maybe it just doesn't matter. We're just here to accept that Singer is reestablishing his vision. I I feel like that's the overall thesis for this film. Let's get it back to that X2 status quo. Jacob, you're right when you say the X2 status quo. I have a little bit of an interesting perspective because... I'm the one who makes the credits for all the now playing shows, so I have to listen to a lot of scores to find that iconic theme that I'm going to use for the credits. And when we did X-Men, it didn't have one. They didn't reuse a score in any of the movies we were doing. And so I listened to it, and then I re-listened to some of our podcasts, and I knew what I had picked. What I found to be the most iconic score was the opening to X2. Sure enough, here it is in Days of Future Past, the first time a theme is reused, trying to give the X-Men some iconic theme, only it's a bit of a heavier score. It's a bit more of a deep resonance of the performance. You know, I'm not the comic book reader, but I'm totally fine with this. I'm surprised you guys are taking it so hard. Actually, I'm not. You guys are continuity Nazis. <laughs> this is what we're here for. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know that these things are very important to you, but I take it like this. Haven't you ever watched a TV show, and then you dropped out of it, and then you hear something amazing happen, and you come back in? I think that's what it will feel like for many people. If you've seen an X-Men movie, you kind of know what the world is. I don't need to know whether Magneto got his powers back or not. I don't need to know how Charles got back into a physical body. I'm sure that there are other comics and episodes or whatever that would explain that. And maybe one day they'll go back and fill that gap in. But they're jumping to the point where they want to start a story. And I think that's fine. As long as they got a good story, fine. I don't need to know the in-between. Okay, but there's not just the gaps of why is Professor X alive and why does Wolverine have adamantium claws? They bring into this movie Stryker. This is the fourth actor to portray Stryker. (laughs) Fourth? Yes, there was Brian Cox in X2, as well as another dude in X2 for flashback scenes. Oh, okay. That's who you're counting then. Yes. Then there was the 40-some-year-old guy in Wolverine Origins. Danny Houston, yeah. And now, this movie, taking place during X-Men Origins Wolverine, there's a new Stryker who looks to be like in his mid-twenties, who's not wearing a wedding ring despite having a son, Jason, that's dropped. I mean, this movie takes place when Vietnam is ending. They're signing the peace accord, and I'm sorry, I just rewatched X-Men Origins Wolverine. It was in Vietnam that Victor went nuts, <laughs> and Wolverine and Victor were recruited by Stryker for the Weapon X program. So, huh? So... 
Forget origins, Arnie. I think the, the easiest <laughs> answer is origins never happen. You guys need to not stress these kind of continuity things, like particularly when they're connected to th- things that aren't good. I, who cares about that? Then don't make such a continuity reliant film like we get to the end of this film does it make any sense if you haven't watched those early singer ones like that's all i'm saying don't try to bring up this sense of nostalgia oh look cyclops and gene gray are back yay happy we got rid of ratner's vision don't bring that up unless you want to actually take all this continuity picking and choosing with this kind of stuff i don't know It, it bugs me I see that, but it didn't bug me. I just want to put it out there. I'm fine with picking up this way. Of course, I was puzzled. And of course, I was like, did I miss something? Was there something that I didn't connect with? What I'm hearing from you guys is no. They haven't told us yet how this could all be. But yes, the future world, Magneto is still Magneto. Ian McKellen did get his powers back. And Patrick Stewart did get into a new body, which also was in a wheelchair. And I'm doubly pissed because one of the things that hyped me for this movie so much was that end credit stinger in the wolverine which was two years after the main plot of the wolverine where wolverine's at an airport and magneto and xavier are there what does that have to do with this movie at all it told me that the next enemy was going to be the sentinels as the non-comic book fan all i knew about the sentinels other than the matrix (laughs) is that they had a kind of a joke in last stand where they were in a holodeck fighting some robots and you guys explained to me that this was a really cool comic book villain so i knew enough to know that this was this universe's version of the terminator and that what the they would be fighting this time is sentinels yeah, you know, you bring up Terminator. This is Terminator 2, right? Like, that, it really does have that feel. I call it Terminator 5 X-Men Judgment Day. <laughs> I just say Terminator 1. But, you know, I went back and I finally read, I'd never read it, the Days of Future Past comics. And I'm reading this and going, what a Terminator ripoff. <laughs> comics are such derivative crap. You mean this came out four years before Terminator? Yeah, before the Terminator. It is one of the iconic... X-Men stories, one of the iconic Marvel stories. To tell you how times change, it's only two issues. It's it's not six issues long, ten issues long. It was two of the regular issues, but yeah. X-Men dystopian future where Sentinels, giant robots are killing all the X-Men. I mean, there are some great iconic panels and covers and that that I would recommend just for that. I mean, watching Kitty Pride or Catherine Pride because she's older now. Another problem. This is 2023. Ellen Page doesn't look much older than she did in, what, 2006 from The Last Stand. You know what? I don't think Ellen Page <laughs> is going to look different in 30 years. She's just kind of got that kid look to her. But yeah, I mean, you get Catherine Pride. They live in concentration camps and they have to walk through the graveyards and you got the tombstone for charles xavier and cyclops and even for like the thing and johnny storm like they've killed all superheroes it's this great setup that hadn't really been done in comics at this point where you have that your dystopian futures and yeah they go back in time to change this one event to try to avoid this future so this was written in 1979 1980 is that when this it was published in 81 written in 80 that makes sense Yeah, I could see anything coming out of the 70s being bleak and stark. We didn't have optimism about the future until well into Reagan's second term. 
So yeah, I mean, I was thinking it was a Terminator ripoff. It turns out maybe Cameron ripped this off. I mean, it, the similarities are there quite a bit. And so it's funny how the worm eats itself because Brian Singer went to James Cameron for time travel advice while making this film. Right. I'm fine with that. I like the Terminator and I like X-Men. So if that's what they're going to combine for this story, I think that that's good. I think that that feels weighty. More importantly, they can check the box that I want to see checked. They can still include the cast that I think is far and away better than the original cast. I mean, yeah, I'm sure some people are happy to see here in the beginning Storm and Kitty Pride and Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. No one's happy to see Storm again. Come on. <laughs> I actually was. I didn't know. I somehow in all of the media blitz, I'd overlooked that Halle Berry was back. I knew she and Singer didn't get along. I was happy to see her back. Hey, good haircut this time again. Yeah, best storm we've gotten. When she finally unleashes her fury, I actually can see what they were going for all this time. I, I know, actually thought she was great in this. You know what happens to a sentinel when it gets struck by lightning? <laughs> Jack and shit. Yeah. <laughs> But the point is that I think that the British crew, is how I refer to them, the first class, are better than the Americans in these parts. I enjoy first class not only because it was a great written superhero 60s adventure, but just the cast chemistry itself. I thought that cast had a lot going on. They're not being forgotten here. Basically, it feels mandated. You must have Wolverine in this. They found a great way to put the Wolverine everyone apparently needs to have in with the cast that I can't live without. Now, even I, who I'm not the comic book fan Jacob is, but I collect the toys and I read some books. Even I'm like confused by this opening scene though, because it opens with this ginormous, expensive sentinel battle where everyone dies. And it's like, okay, I'd be sad if I knew who the hell any of these people were. Why is the human torch here? You, you mean Sunspot, but yeah, I mean, all these X-Men, they their powers overlap. But come on, you see Iceman die. He, he's a familiar face. That was cool. I I liked how he just was like an ice sculpture that chunked. No blood, nothing, just ice. You could put him in a drink. And I love that he had his ice slide from Spider-Man and the Amazing Friends. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you know, and here's the thing. I'm like, okay, I get it. This is the future. The whole point of this movie is to change this. But I love it that, hey, we're going to start off. We are going to kill, well, at least one iconic X-Men from these films, <laughs> Iceman. Hey, Colossus, too. He gets torn in half. That's right. We got Colossus here. But yeah, Blink and Sunspot and Warpath. No one knows who they are unless you read the comics. But I was kind of excited by that, even though I know, okay, you're going to change the future. These deaths don't really matter, but it's a great way to start the film. But no, they can't even commit to fake future deaths. <laughs> nope, that's just a astral projection that they're looking at. No, no, no. It happened. It happened. What happens is the first fight, which is setting the stage, everyone dies except for Bishop, who... You I kind of know, but not really from the comics. And Kitty Pride, who now has magically gained the ability to project consciousness through time. Not in the comic. Totally made up by Singer. And she was the main character. She was the one who traveled through time in the comic. So I get why they did this. And Bishop is the one who traveled time in the animated 90s version of the same story. So she transfers Bishop's consciousness back in time two weeks to say, yo, don't go to this base or you're all going to die. 
And so it all then stops happening, and we immediately jump back in time two weeks when they're all telling Professor X, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to die in two weeks if we do this. And apparently this has happened many, many times, is that they just keep almost dying, and Bishop keeps getting sent back two weeks in time so they can not die again. Isn't Tom Cruise doing this in a couple weeks? I feel like he's got a movie <laughs> with the exact same premise. The Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Sci-fi Groundhog Day. Yeah, exactly. And and source code. Yeah, this is this is a trope of science fiction. It's not a very good long-term plan. It keeps them alive for now, but it's not going to help them defeat this enemy. It just keeps them one step ahead of an enemy that is closing in and going to be their annihilation eventually. Yeah, you know what also isn't a good idea? Flying your Superfly X-Jet when there's sentinels all around. I, I get it. It's what, Tibet or somewhere in the mountains of China. It doesn't seem very secretive when sentinels are all over the world. Like, that's what's so weird to me. I, I thought, okay, we're going to get Kitty and Bishop and whoever's on this jet. And then the other X-Men show up, Warpath and Iceman. I'm like, okay, those got to be like sentinels. They could, you know, they're like the, the X-1000 or whatever it was. They're liquid metal. They could change their shape and they're going to sabotage them. But nope, it's just... Yeah, they, they just look into the future all the time and can find safe places. I don't know. It's You know what? This didn't bother me as a shorthand way to tell the audience, hey, look, this time travel can save everyone's life. You're going to show us instead of tell us, and I always think that's a good idea. Except they tell us everything that happened because it doesn't make any sense when you're just watching it. <laughs> well, yeah, but I was a little bit shocked. I never thought they were Sentinels when the dead ex people who I barely know come out of the shadows. I'm like, oh, okay, so time travel already. I wasn't confused. What is alarming about this is that, oh, it's, hey, it's these people I haven't seen in a while. Oh, my God, they're dead. Oh, she did something magical. I can't wait to find out what it's going to be. To me, this was a hook. I want to know what's going on. I want to know how we're taking on the Sentinels. I was pulled into the story instantly by this opening. I just thought, wow, that looked expensive, but it was exactly <laughs> what I expected the opening to be. Everyone dies. Somebody travels back to the 70s to fix it. You know, and, and maybe that, Stuart, the difference is you haven't read this. So, yeah, you don't know where it's going. You're just taking it all in. I, I know where this is going. I'm just not taken in by this opening scene. I think there's some great battle moments. I actually like Blink's powers where she's opening up portals and throwing people through them. I like her death. Yeah, her death is great, too, where it stabs through one portal and gets her, like, I, I think that action stuff is great, but there's something about the atmosphere, like, this is the dark, gritty future, we got our super slick clothes, and we have time to do our pink highlights, like, there, it's just little <laughs> things like that. It is little things, I want to point out, yeah. like, what you're obsessing on seems kind of minuscule in the scheme of things. To me, being on a show where two people screamed that Last Stand was the best X-Men movie, because it had the most combat between mutants, I would have thought you would have eaten this up. I thought this was at least as good as what Brett Ratner gave us at the end of his film in the beginning of this one. I don't know. It doesn't seem like anyone's that interested to be in this future. Now I get it, it's a bad future. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be there. But Ellen Page, like she just seems real flat. I don't get a sense of danger in any of this. I, I get a sense of we're on a green screen and we're trying to act all dark and moody. I don't know. It's it's actually the the acting that is not getting me involved in this film at the beginning. I'll agree with you on Ellen Page. I think she's terrible in this movie. I think she is exceptionally poor. Really? And just flat in this film. But I disagree with you that seeing McKellen and Patrick Stewart back, they bring something to it. I think Storm has... Even fewer lines here than she had in the first X-Men film. <laughs> Did she even speak at the beginning? I don't think so. But Stuart and McKellen are telling me what I need to know. 
Ellen Page, I haven't seen her since Super, and I don't want to see her again. <laughs> to me, Ellen Page basically spends the entire movie with her hands about two <laughs> inches away from Hugh Jackman's. I Looking s- pretty constipated. You didn't like that? Okay. I, I was okay with that. I don't feel like this was a showcase for Ellen Page at all. I, I get that some of this dark future, we've seen a lot of dark futures for decades now, and this is not any darker or more ominous, but that scene where we're going into Cerebro, and we suddenly see that the world doesn't have nearly as many mutants as it used to, and they're all screaming. I think that was the one moment where I felt like, oh, this is haunting. This is scary. A lot, you know, skyscrapers that have fallen down, and in skeletons, and heaps, and all of that, that's cliche. But no, that moment in Cerebro is what tells me this is a very ominous future. And yeah, I think watching that old crew come down, I didn't think I'd get nostalgic to see Halle Berry as Storm. <laughs> I think there was a big reaction when we saw Wolverine, of course, and then he gets to chomp on his cigar. I think that must have been a big issue over battles in the past, but he wins over the studio. He gets to have Wolverine smoke in this film. And that's all I'm saying, Stuart, is I just, I don't feel that this is grim enough. I don't get that from the performance. I do feel like I've seen all this before, and the action, it's it's pretty good, but I don't feel like there's danger. Like, I already know this is like a time travel story, so we're just going to fix it in the past. We'll set up something in this future that feels dangerous, that feels like we have to do it right at this moment. And I don't get that feeling from this opening. I'll give you this. To me, this movie is also taking from Inception. This is like what's happening on the exterior world. I'd much rather be in the dream world. I'd much rather be back in 1973. Not only because I love the 1973 cast, but I also feel like that's where the best conflict comes on. This is a generic future world. The robots are generic. What was surprising for me is after having been told by comic book fans that the Sentinels are badass, I don't get that at the beginning or end of this movie. I'm not sure why they're a beloved. You're not impressed by these future Sentinels? I certainly am. I love how you hit them with ice, they turn to fire. You hit them with fire, they turn to ice. I think these are truly unstoppable. Okay, well, I'm glad we're continuing to not agree because I don't (laughs) see what the big deal is about Gort. (laughs) And I don't know if these things have ever, this version of them has ever been in the comics. I'm more familiar with something like we'll see later on in this film, the big purple tall robots. But here's the thing that's hooking me. Why are they able to change and adapt these X-Men powers? Like, why is that going on? And we'll actually get an answer later on in this film. So that is the one thing I'm like, wow, these Sentinels are really different and they're able to absorb these X-Men's powers and mimic them. And I do want to know why that is, because that is interesting. I do like these Sentinels. They're different from the comics, but they're pretty cool. They got some cool powers and I want to know how these things got created. That's actually not where my instincts are lying. I don't care about these robots. They're generic robots. They bring a generic doomsday future. But I am curious to know what the pivotal moment, what is the kill Sarah Kana moment in this film? I actually love the twist of this. It's not to go back in time and kill someone to prevent a future. It's to stop a killing. I mean, what says Professor X more than a pacifist? I really felt like that was a nice twist on an old formula, that we have to go back and stop Mystique from shooting the man that's going to develop the Sentinels. And now I'll just want to get this out of the way right away. Okay, so as I said in the plot summary, Mystique killing Trask on this specific day is what got people to go with the Sentinel program, which was developed by Trask. And this happens in 1973. 
there's a conceit in time travel stories that bothers me. It's when you know something's going to happen on this day at this time. And so you go back so close to the events happening that you have to rush. Why not go back in time to when Trask was an infant, smother him in the crib, <laughs> and fix this problem that way so that the guy who invented Sentinel Tech never can live to invent Sentinel Tech? Why save his life? That seems iffy to me. <laughs> Because Professor X has always been a character about changing minds. He isn't an assassin. That isn't what he would do. He would never go back and kill someone. He would go back to stop someone from killing someone. And that's the premise of this. If Mystique could go back in time, she would go back and kill him in the crib. But this is Professor X's plan. And his plan is to bring harmony through understanding. There is a mutant that would do that, and he is hatching a plan here, but I didn't see that. He's hanging in the background. Magneto was there, and he's like, you're going to need me in the past, too. But I didn't know what, why. I just thought it was because they both loved Mystique, and that their influence on Mystique would get her to put down the gun. But, no, he has a different agenda than X, and that'll be discussed later. Well, I, I don't know if future Magneto has an agenda. I, I think it was just that we saw at the end of First Class... Mystique goes off with Magneto, that Charles has no sway over her anymore. And so I thought that would be the hook is we have to get Magneto because that's who she aligns herself with now. Yeah, I love this as a setup. This is the drama. I mean, when I think about what I like about the X-Men, it's always been Magneto and Mystique and to a lesser degree, Professor X. I mean, Wolverine, I can take or leave. Honestly, I understand he's this fan favorite. I could take or leave that he's the one going back. I'm fine with. If that's who you want to send back, great. That makes everyone else happy. But for me, the drama, the tension, everything we're going to get in this movie, the stuff that I love in this movie is Charles and Magneto battling over who gets to control Mystique or is she her own person. And I do like that Wolverine's the one sent back because he doesn't age. It does provide him a chance to interact with the previous cast. His cameo in X-Men First Class is truly one of the high points of that movie. Oh, come on. I was looking for... No, come on. It's a not joke. It's a throwaway. It's a humorous high point, but not a high point. Yeah. It's still a high point. I was looking forward to the interplay. I question the reasoning they give. What if my mind can repair itself as quickly as it's torn apart? That didn't help with his 20 to 40 years of amnesia, but okay, let's go with it. And Well, he wasn't shot with a magic bullet. <laughs> That they bring him into the 70s with a lava lamp at a waterbed, and you put Wolverine in a waterbed. I know where that's going. Except it doesn't go there, does it? Yeah, he, he pops it. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was going to, like, wake up all freaked out and popped it. But uh, you know what? First, you get a, a great uh, backside shot of Hugh Jackman in great shape as ever. Better! I actually cannot believe. Yes, he's got more lines in his face than he did when he started this, but his physical conditioning keeps getting better. I don't know who his trainer is, but... Here's the thing is, this is the first time he's ever had double the training time, because he went straight from his training for the Wolverine into this. So mm. it's just continuing that same program yeah. for double the time. I think, though, I don't like this look. He has gotten too big. His neck is so thick, and it's made his face seem a little puffy that it hit me midway through the movie. He's almost indistinguishable from any of Tony Soprano's background goons from the TV series. 
<laughs> Are those the same goons that show up in this scene? <laughs> it's not a problem for me. I, I think that Hugh Jackman looks fearsome, and he still has got his comic chops. He's always had that. So he can now inhabit both sides of Wolverine. He can be scary and badass, and then he can disarm it all with a joke. I think that actually he's giving his best one of his best performances as Wolverine here. Oh, no, no, no. I, I feel he's so one-note in this. He doesn't have a lot to do as a character. This character is just there as a plot point. I don't feel like he grows or changes in any way. I don't feel his inflections and line deliveries are that great. He is there to me, but I'm surprised this is the first X-Men film out of all the X-Men film where I feel Hugh Jackman let me down. Wow. No, I I, I agree with you, Stuart. At, at this scene, when he gets his introduction, when he gets a chance to do something, I think he does shine. Later on, when it's all about Xavier and Magneto and Mystique, yeah, he's going to end up just lying at the bottom of a river. He doesn't do much at all to forward the plot. But when he gets a chance to interact in a scene and actually have some lines, I, I do think he's great. The first half of this movie, he is pivotal because he's the only one that can get the team back together he is the glue he knows what they'll become and so he is insisting that they do things that their characters are not ready for to stop this moment from occurring now after that we'll talk about the second half of the movie when we get there but in this first half i disagree i think wolverine is made essential they have built it around him he is the biggest star of this movie and he has a lot to do here in this first half to get charles and eric and everyone on the same page now, something that was said by Patrick Stewart that threw me for a loop, uh, maybe you guys knew from comic book history, but he mentions that in 1973, he didn't have his powers. Is this established ever before in comics? Not to my knowledge. Yeah, not to my knowledge. I, I don't know if he was ever a junkie. Like, literally, I thought he was shooting heroin. Me too. In this scene. <laughs> I so thought he was just It was heroin. the 70s, you know, cocaine was coming in. and He looks a little scraggly, and the whole place has fallen into disrepair. I could believe that the X-Mansion has turned into an opium den. That's what I thought. I'm like, that's kind of cool. We gotta go save Xavier from an opium den. That was my exact thought. <laughs> And I do like the realism that the reason the X school fell apart, the draft, the younger teachers, the older students, they were all drafted to go to Nam. I think that's an interesting take. But everyone was drafted. Like, were they drafted because they were mutants and they wanted mutants fighting the war? Like, later on, we'll go to Vietnam and we'll see that there's these mutant soldiers all grouped together. Like, I, I was unclear on that. It seemed weird that, like, every student of age was drafted to go fight Vietnam. I know there was a lot of people drafted. I don't think I, – I didn't look up my percentage numbers for the draft. I don't think it would be every person in a school and every teacher. No, I actually take that to mean, you're right, it wouldn't be normally. I take it to mean that the government recognized that these quote-unquote gifted students had things that they could bring to combat that a regular infantryman could not. I take it to mean exactly that. The government made mutant platoons for combat and that we could have a future movie where we see whole teams of mutants taking down the Viet Cong in such a way. Or a past movie, X-Men Origins. Uh, yeah, we saw that. It was Wolverine. <laughs> I'm not ever thinking of that again. I'm not going to I'm not going to contemplate that again. And that seems, I seem to be alone in that uh, on this podcast. No, no, I agree with you. I don't want to go back to that film either. I remember it though. It scarred my brain. Yeah. Those wounds have not healed. Hey, they made it is all I'm saying. It's not, I did. It's not my fault they made it. Yeah. They made it. They have to live with it. 
But I, I think that this is wonderful, what they've done. Because Vietnam and the death of JFK is one of those things that in popular culture, people have talked about going back and what if Kennedy didn't die? What if we didn't go into Vietnam? And that everything bad that has happened to America since then has been attributable to this moment. Not only are the mutants going back to stop their annihilation, they're going back to fix the wrong that happened to all of us at that time. And it's even made explicit. Trask, at one point, in trying to sell his Sentinel, says, you're making a mistake as bad as Vietnam by not greenlighting my program. I I love the parallels between our real history and this alternative mutant history. And here's my thing. I get what's going on. Okay, yeah, we're, we're dealing with Vietnam. I don't know. There's something. I don't know if it's Singer, the way he's directing these actors. It just doesn't come off with this heaviness that I think it should. I mean, James McAvoy, he's got his long, scraggly, greasy hair, and he's shooting up. I liked his performance in First Class. I don't feel like it's the same thing here. I'm not drawn in. Like, again, First Class, when he gets shot, I know Xavier's in a wheelchair. I've known that since I've been reading comics since I was 13. That caught me off moment because I was so absorbed by these performances. Here, I just don't feel the way I should be, like, I think I should be feeling this movie. Like, I'm not as drawn in. And I feel like it's something to do with these performances that... They're just not to that level that they were before. Oh, wow. All right, I'm going to switch over to Stewart's side on this one now, (laughs) because once we get to McAvoy and to Beast, I'm thinking that these are spot on. I figure the reason he's walking was retcon, because he walked in The Last Stand, and people were like, well, how could he walk in The Last Stand if he was paralyzed here? But I like the, the dichotomy that they're giving him. He is going to be crippled in one way or another. They can cripple his mutant powers, or they can cripple his legs. And Beast the same way. I do think continuity error. Why is the cure such a big deal in X3 if Beast had developed it in the 70s and it's not so permanent? Rogue could just shoot up, have sex, and then be done. But <laughs> See, I, I felt like that was a, a explanation why Hank McCoy was a human in Singer's vision. Like... Hey, we didn't turn him into the beast yet. We had him as a regular politician. Let's come up with a way here to explain my vision earlier in those first X-Men 2 films. But I like the performances. And despite the continuity, I said at the top, I'm not going to obsess over it. I like what they're getting here. I love the Wolverine beast fight. Hey, beastie, beastie. You know, I I thought that was kind of fun. Having only known Beast from Last Stand and not getting it at all, like not understanding why this is an important character. He most of the time in First Class was not that blue creature. So I didn't really associate him as the same thing. But here, now that we we see the fight and, and his camaraderie with Wolverine, I get it. I actually like these two together. It's a great introduction. I'm not going to go with you on the performances being weaker than last time. I think this cast is just as strong as last time, and I think Wolverine coming into this brings an extra spark. I actually think they play better by having Hugh Jackman here. It's not just a mandated studio order that we get our star into the X-Men movie. It actually improves things. I actually do like the Beast here. I I think he carries over from his performance in First Class, but there's something that's just not clicking with me. It just doesn't seem as heavy, to put it in 70s terms, as it should feel. I actually have the opposite instinct. I felt like, if anything, this movie's a little bit too heavy for me on the histrionics. A lot of people crying and wringing their hands when the last movie felt more fun. It was the swing in 60s. There was a lot more people smiling than in this movie. As you pointed out, Charles is essentially a version of a druggie in this. And I completely side with Stuart, but in a bad way. 
I loved X-Men First Class for that swinging 60s vibe. And here, I'm like, mother bleep, singer's back, and my god, he just can't make a fun frickin' superhero movie. <laughs> X-Men 1, X-Men 2, the abomination Superman Returns, and here, he's just gonna bring the sour attitude. He must have, I mean, I know the guy knows how to party, but he must have some lonely, bleak nights. <laughs> you know what, Arnie? I think you just nailed it for me. I think I, I finally figured it out. Is that, yes, this feels like a singer film, and every, it's that soap opera-ish feel where it's all melodramatic, and you know what? I I came out and said it. I liked Last Stand. It was a fun film. And yeah, that 60s first class, that was a fun film. This one does seem so dour. And maybe that's why it's not clicking with me. There's just something that seems a little off with this one that's not quite jiving. Well, I hear that you want to put that down as, as a blemish on this. And I get it to a certain degree. I'd rather have fun than to be depressed, particularly in a, you know, superhero movie. But couldn't we also ascribe this to being a different decade? I mean, the 70s weren't the 60s. The 60s had optimism that we did not have in the 70s. And since we're facing an apocalypse and all of that, I think it's the right tone. I just think that it's less fun. I'm not saying that this movie is bad for doing it. I'm just saying that as much as I'm enjoying this movie, the other one had more effervescence. It was just more fun to consume. It was a better drug, if you will. <laughs> yes, I agree 100%. I understand that we're getting so many superhero movies. I'd be bored if they were all the same superhero movie. So I like that they're doing this to give a change of pace, but I do it's just not what I enjoy watching as much. It fits for this movie. I just think Matthew Vaughn could have told the same story and made it a bit more fun at times. I think that the Wolverine beast fight could have been a real showcase of some fun, kind of like the Captain America Thor Iron Man fight in Avengers. And instead, it's over pretty quick. It's got the nice moment of Beast hanging from the chandelier, but it's not as fun as it could be. I'm going to just go ahead and say, I think that now that we're back in 1973, this movie is as good as first class. It just feels different for this first half. All the way leading up to the peace treaty in Paris, I think this movie is exemplary. I will mostly agree with you there. I, I got to say, coming up is the best scene, maybe better than any scene even in first class, and that is Quicksilver. They they go to get another mutant to break. I do love this conceit. I do love, like, I don't know if it started with Ocean's Eleven, but, you know, Charlie's Angels did it where you just get the more and more and more ridiculous breakout scenes where you gotta, I, I guess it started with Mission Impossible, with Tom Cruise having to catch his sweat before it hits the sensors on the floor. But I, I do love that conceit, like, Magneto is in a concrete cell, like, in the middle of the Pentagon, like, miles under the earth. That is a great breakout scene. I, this is the best part of the film. And what he's there for, they tease it twice. In the future, Ian McKellen goes, oh, I remember where I was. And we're like, well, what does that mean? And then we go to Vietnam and we see Jennifer Lawrence mystique as Colonel Sanders, of all things. And she's <laughs> asked by the troops as she's rescuing him, where's Eric? I'm on my own. Like, they've built up to this. I want to know what's happened to Eric, that he's in prison for killing JFK, a stroke of genius. Yes. The way they get him out is the introduction of Quicksilver. Now, this is kind of amusing because Quicksilver is going to be in the Avengers next year. We saw him in the teaser at, ca at the end of Captain America. A totally different Quicksilver and a totally different continuity, both played by actors from Kick-Ass. But... 
I expected to hate Quicksilver based on the pre-release photos. Of him eating, what, cheeseburgers at Carl's Jr.? <laughs> While wearing a Walkman, and I'm like, I'm gonna hate this kid. And the initial scene where they introduce him, and he's playing ping pong with himself and all over the place, I'm like, he's annoying me the way he's annoying Wolverine. I love this character after the breakout, though. This breakout is my favorite scene of the movie, and Quicksilver's the reason why, and I never expected that going in. No, I'm right there with you, Arnie. I didn't expect Quicksilver to be the best part of this film. He is. I liked him from his first introduction, you know. Yeah, he. this is the character that plays Todd in the first Kick-Ass film. There's something, I don't know, Malcolm McDowell-ish looking to his face, which I think gives a sense of mischief to me, which perfectly fits this character. They have not been able to do this. They maybe did it a little bit with Nightcrawler, but they have not been able to introduce a mutant in a sequel that was ever as impactful as the mutants in that first movie. And I've been promised this. I mean, they're like, oh, Beast, he's awesome. And then I got Kelsey Grammer doing a Grimace impression. And then it was like, <laughs> oh, Gambit, you gotta love Gambit. He's awesome. And then I got Wolverine's Origins. And let me just say, <laughs> not awesome. I keep, like, rolling my eyes every time they trot out some new mythically brilliant character. They've done it. This guy is awesome. And I, I love the fact that he just does this one bit. They get him for one job, he comes in, he blows all of our minds, and then that's it. You're going to have to wait for me later. Oh, I hate that. No, it's the way to go. <laughs> Leave them wanting. Leave them begging for more. This is the best action highlight. For me, it's not the best scene. But for action scenes, this breakout, phenomenal. Yeah, and also I love the music they use for it. Time in a Bottle. It reminded me of a choice Rob Zombie would have made, like the way he used Knights in White Satin for the murders in Halloween 2. But to me, the instinct is you go high octane. You, I mean, it's kind of a Matrix bullet time scene. So I would think you'd go with some Matrix techno score, something to really amp up and make you feel speed. But that they go with this slow musical piece from the 70s because everybody else is moving so slow. And it, he does it with such playfulness this is the kind of fun that is nowhere else in this film that he's just moving the bullets around a little bit tasting the soup yes. making people punch themselves tying up guards with duct tape with this mischievous smile the whole time you know where the gauntlet's really thrown it's not just to avengers who can never have a quicksilver scene this good but to that batman superman and the next falls dc flash series the gauntlet is thrown yeah i agree i don't like this as a concept usually the idea that a character is really fast is silly the flash has never appealed to me as a character i didn't know what quicksilver was it sounded to me like marvel's ripoff of the flash but no this is a fantastic creation fantastically inhabited i was already worried for aaron taylor johnson after godzilla now i know he's <laughs> yeah and I, I love that they fooled me like we get magneto wolverine charles and quicksilver they're surrounded by pentagon security with their guns drawn and time freezes and that's a charles xavier thing like i'm like oh did his powers like all of a sudden come back but i loved and then it focuses on him and he just casually puts the headphones on and he does his thing it is i will say the best scene in this film i had renewed faith in this film after i saw this scene it blew me away that as quick as the character moves is how quick he turned me around from a hater to a lover. Yeah, no, tasting the soup, moving the bullets, making people hit each other, all this great fun. And he's having great fun doing it. We're watching a character that enjoys being better than everyone else. Cockiness. That's the key trait here. That used to be stuff that they'd give to Wolverine, but he had a lot of glower, too. This guy's got no angst. 
he is what he is. And I, I think it's a lot of fun to watch. And again, I love the fact that he comes in, blows this all away, and leaves us wanting more. I think he should have shown up at the end. I think if you set up such a great character in Act 1, you use him in Act 3. That is a disappointment that they didn't. I do want to just add also, I love his motivation for going. He's like, why would I want to do this? And Charles Xavier's line, because you klepto, you get to break into the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, he's like, you mean I get to do even more illegal stuff? Great. Yeah. He's like today's hacker kid that is bored with high school and is at home working on programs to destroy things. Yeah. Give him a challenge that's worth his skill and he'll go with it. And, and so, yeah, he's, he could be involved in the end, but he's not political. He's he's a selfish teenager. So to me, he wouldn't be moved by talk of future visions of robots and all that. You couldn't convince him to join the cause. It wouldn't mean anything to him. He's not a group guy. He's not a team player. He's a solo act. Except they drop the obvious line, hey, my father could do something with metal. Yeah, in the comic, Magneto is Quicksilver's father. I thought that they were getting at that because they'd have that funny exchange after he's given him whiplash and gotten him down the hall. He, he goes, my mother knew a guy. And I thought that that's what they were getting at because Fassbender's reaction implies that he, he was like, hmm, could that be? <laughs> nice to know while hunting for Schmidt, he stopped for some banging. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> Nazi hunting is tiring. Yeah. <laughs> you need a stress reliever there. Yeah, it, it reminded us that this is a fun character as well. Yeah, all of this stuff. Yeah, a real highlight of this movie. A real highlight of superhero movies. This is one of the great scenes. And yeah, it takes bullet time, Matrix stuff to the new level. We've been wanting to see what they could do after bullet time. This is it. This is incredible stuff. It's quick time. Oh, wait, Apple copyrighted that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Magneto is in jail because of the assassination of Kennedy. And this actually is a couple of things. First of all, I love the thought of Magneto causing the magic bullet. And there's an entire website for those who want to just go into this. It was some of the pre-release stuff. It's thebentbullet.com that talks all about the trials and things. They did change a plot point, though, if you believe this site. Assuming this site was done with Singer's approval and everything, there was a second twist. Yes, Magneto was trying to save Kennedy because Kennedy was a mutant, but Lee Harvey Oswald had been replaced by Mystique, and Mystique killed Kennedy. They changed that. They now say Trask is Mystique's first kill, but all the pre-release stuff... Mystique killed Kennedy, and Magneto had tried to stop her. I'm glad they did change that, because, uh, I don't, I know we said we didn't do this, but later on, in those continuity-wise, like, they're best buds, and, you know, until Mystique le- loses her powers, and Magneto's like, screw you, taking off, but, yeah, it would seem weird if they were working on opposite sides for a decade or so, then they become best buds. I, I would want to see that movie, why does that happen? I'm glad they left that out, because I do feel like that last film, First Class, told us everything we need to know why Magneto and Mystique have a relationship, and why they side together. I like the idea that they brought in that conspiracy of America, all of that stuff. I like Eric's scene here, too, on the plane as he's working through it. And as he's getting angrier and angrier, thinking about all the mutants that have died, he nearly crashes the plane. And I'm glad that they brought up and even showed us some autopsy photos for those. Because looking at the cast list coming in, I'm like, it's so chock full, but... What about poor Riptide and Azazel and Banshee and Havoc? Havoc gets one pointless scene, and the rest, at least they name-dropped them to keep continuity. I, I do think it's funny that people were so upset with Ratner, because Cyclops, he just dies so easily, and Dark Phoenix dies, and the like, the people, and Xavier died, people felt like he was just writing these people off. 
these people, these mutants from their previous film, they don't even get a kill scene. They're just, they're written off the page before they even show up on set. It's just like, oh, Angel, here's one of her wings. Banshee, yep, he's dead. Like, it, totally written out, which I, I feel was, again, I like those characters. It, it felt weird that they now are just all dead. We didn't get to see that. Just moving on. I'm cool. I'm more than cool with the bimbo being gone. What was her name? <laughs> Emma, Emma Frost. Frost. Yeah. I, the only thing I would have liked is to see her die. Yeah. Yeah. She was, <laughs> she was the one thing when you go back and watch first class, I still kind of like, ugh, but that's not good. But other than that, that movie's perfect. But yeah, that, look, they can't make this movie five hours long and show you everything you want to see. They have to compress. I think if you'd watch Avengers again, you'd see elements of where they have to compress storyline and characters. And not everyone gets their moment. I, I, I'm fine with Angel not getting her death scene. I'm fine with all of this. I like that it's reduced to one really powerful monologue by a really good actor that ends with a laugh. It ends with Wolverine saying, clean up the plane after he destroys it. Yeah. Fastbender, yeah, he is as strong as ever. I, again, I feel like there are certain actors that do save this for me. And Fastbender, I'm glad he's back. He, he's got to be the best part of First Class. I mean, he's the one that impressed me the most. I love Magneto anyway, but he's even better than McKellen, and McKellen's great. Yeah, I agree. People are saying Jennifer Lawrence has got to be the new Wolverine, because they're all like, who's the new Wolverine? Because the contract is up for Jackman. And they're saying... Well, Jennifer Lawrence, she's the it girl. She, Mystique can be the new Wolverine. No, no, no. Magneto is the new Wolverine. He did it in first class. He does it here. It's the best performance and becomes my favorite character in this movie, even though I'm, I don't quite like what they give him to do. But these early scenes, especially when they're trying to kind of get back together. I mean, how do you reconcile after you paralyze someone? <laughs> Play a game of chess. Yeah. Well, which has always been the theme of these X-Men films that we've talked about. No, that, it's it's a tremendous way of bringing them down, making normalizing things. You know, peace is tough. I mean, the whole thing is framed around the Vietnam Peace Treaty, which was very tough for America to come to the realization we weren't going to win. I think that that's also being paralleled here with them sitting down for chess. I think there's so many nice ties between Vietnam and their character story. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things as we get to Paris here is... Magneto's turn. He's always been the one that's like willing to do anything to save mutants. It's like the one thing you wouldn't want to do is harm other mutants. Like it was always kill humanity to preserve mutanthood. Here he turns on that. He goes after one of his own and it is shocking. He goes after Mystique. This is the best scene for me. I mean, if we're getting to the actual moment they've been building up to, there's one scene in history where everything changes and we get Sentinels or we don't get Sentinels, and it's whether Mystique gets there, pulls up the gun and shoots Trask, and now they've intervened. We've changed history. We know it's different. Okay, she's not going to kill Trask. This is it, right? We're, we're fine. And then you realize what it was all about for Ian McKellen way back in the future to begin with. That he always knew that his younger self would make the tough choice that no one else was ready to make. I think this is the best twist in the movie. I think this is the best scene in the movie. I think it's a better surprise than when you find out who Kaiser Soze's is. I think this is Brian Singer at his best. Yeah, I feel like as far as none of the other drama stuff has really worked for me, this is when it does work. That this turn that Magneto makes... Yeah, I, I do agree with you, Stuart. That Quicksilver, I say that's the best scene. It's the most fun scene, but yes. dramatically, yes, this is 
the heavy stuff that I wanted. This is the weight that I wanted to feel that I wasn't feeling throughout this film earlier on. It's totally Magneto's character, but I so wasn't expecting it. That's the best kind of surprise, right? It's oh, it's yeah. under your nose. But unlike even something like Kaiser Sose, which I didn't see coming either, I mean, here, it really completes a portrait about Magneto. We know we can never like him, even when he's an ally, because he's willing to sacrifice anyone for his cause. He is a very selfish person at the end of the day. Even though he's doing it for all mutantdom, that's his vision of mutantdom, and he will kill you, I, or anyone to accomplish that goal. Even though he had said on the plane how much Mystique meant to him. Right. I love that they do this. I think it's just amazingly awesome change. And again, I didn't see it coming either. I saw in the trailer the scene where Magneto is using his power and Mystique is being drawn to him. And I'm like, A, how is he doing that? Mystique has no metal. She's naked. And B, why are they fighting? And to finally see this realized and the way it happens that Charles tries to save her, that Magneto gets knocked and the gun goes out of his hand, but he uses his power to pull the trigger and bend the bullet to go after Mystique. And that Mystique is limping for the rest of the movie. It's always the tell of who Mystique has turned into now is because they've got a game leg. Yeah, this, as an action scene, is phenomenal. Her jumping out the window, I literally gasped out loud when he has the bullet going and falling her, like taking a Looney Tunes turn for her and then can now manipulate her because the bullet's in her leg. All of this stuff is fantastic. And by the way, I just want to say we've kind of gotten to my favorite part of the movie, but I, just like Magneto, love Jennifer Lawrence. I want to give a shout out to her. They were so lucky to get this woman. I know right now she is in danger of being overexposed. She's won the Oscar. She's everywhere. There's a reason. Unlike a lot of these America's sweethearts they push on us, like Jennifer Lopez or Julia Roberts, I actually think she has tons of charisma. I love her in this part. Do you think she's as flexible or <laughs> Is this all special effects work? You know what her scene reminded me of when she's holding the Vietnamese guy by her neck? Yeah. The end of Bowfinger when Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy are standing there and <laughs> legs come kicking out of nowhere. Yeah. It's just just like <laughs> puppet legs versus their bodies. That's what I'm thinking is going on with Jennifer Lawrence. I love her. Was she even on the set or was this all a stunt double in a blue outfit? That's what I was going to say. I love Mystique in this film. I or Her stunt double, Jennifer Lawrence's stunt double, like when she is using her legs and not just because it's a naked blue lady like spreading her legs to kick guys butts but like the choreography and acrobatically it looks great the way she is splitting her legs and pinning that guy against the wall with her foot like that stuff looks great i don't know maybe i have been overexposed to jennifer lawrence i feel like when she is in jennifer lawrence mode when she's human and pink flesh i i'm not as one over i think she's a great mystique when she's playing more or less herself i don't think it's anything special I agree with you, Jacob. I agree with you both in this way. Stuart, I too love Jennifer Lawrence, and I will see movies that yes. I wouldn't normally see. I'll see her in anything. Yeah, like Hunger Games. If she's in a movie, I will seek it out, and I think she really deserves the award she got. I thought she was a highlight in that first X-Men film. Here, I like the mystique agility and fighting. It's really bringing back those Rebecca Ramone Stamos moves. The difference being, I don't know if Rebecca Romaine is a ninja or not. I'd like to find out. Rebecca, call me. <laughs> but either way, I believed she was. And I never believed Jennifer Lawrence is. And I think Jennifer Lawrence... She's on a three-contract deal. She's admitted she wouldn't have made this movie if she hadn't signed that deal. And 
I don't think she's giving her all here. This is the worst Jennifer Lawrence performance I've ever seen. And I don't know if it's the writing where the character is just so one note and always playing that same tortured tone again and again and again. Or if it's that Jennifer Lawrence is pulling a Natalie Portman, I don't want to be on this set, so I'm just not going to act. But either way... I found myself walking out just disappointed, both with her performance and she doesn't look as good as Mystique. One of the demands she said is, I'm not doing the body paint anymore. You give me a suit. And so that's an outfit and it shows. Is that what that was? Yeah. It looked really blue to me. It, it looked different than the previous versions. Yeah, she refused to do the body paint in the eight hours of makeup. Which, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd want to do eight hours of makeup, and I'm not making Jennifer Lawrence money. You know what? I d- didn't notice a difference. If it, it registered as different to me, it was presumed they had years had passed, and they had a different technique for making it happen. But it didn't make it look lesser. I saw a zipper in a couple <laughs> of scenes. when the, Right down her spine, there's a ridge that's hiding the zipper. Here's my question with Mystique. Zippers aside, what is her motivation? Is it that she's been indoctrinated by Magneto? She She's gone over to his side. Like, we see her earlier. She's in Vietnam rescuing mutants, and she's like, I still have work here. Like, is that what her gig is? Like, why is she the militant all of a sudden? I'm a little confused by this. And why doesn't Spider-Man show up in Vietnam? I thought that was the whole point of showing it at the end of (laughs) Spider-Man. I'm a little confused, not by the Spider-Man thing, (laughs) but Mystique, I get that she is out to save the mutants. She has discovered that there's experimentation or killing of mutants going on. It's explained a little bit more in another website where uh, about how there is a government-sanctioned CIA program to experiment on mutants, and Trask is at the head of it. And so she's the only one who knows this. But what I don't get is there's the scene after he shoots her where Mystique tracks down magneto and magneto goes have you lost yourself while i was away are you charles's raven or are you mystique well she hasn't killed anyone she's been rescuing mutants and getting them freedom so i don't know if that's really losing herself that is more of a raven thing to do the way i took it it was that she was under the influence of charles they were the best of buds during the formative years and then she came around to being on Magneto's side. She saw that Militant was the answer, but she couldn't pal around with him if he's in jail. She had to be on her own. I don't think that was a choice. I think that was just the unfortunate fact of the matter is that she was going to complete what Magneto would be doing if he could. So why is that the question of is she Raven or Mystique? I mean... To me, she is acting very militant in that mystique mode, but what they draw the line very big is she's never killed anyone. To that Vietnamese general's thing, when he collapses, you see him breathing. And when she's rescuing Havoc and Toad and Ink and who's the fourth one, Jacob? No one knows. (laughs) No one knows. He might be Porcupine. He might be Quill. He might be Spike. I don't know. He uses his eyes, even though he has spikes on his head. No one knows. I spent time, countless amounts of time on message boards no one knows who that guy is and their mystique is about to kill striker havoc stops her from killing the first time i saw this movie i wasn't sure why havoc shot striker and now i see it's to prevent mystique from doing her first kill so in that way i mean that's who mystique is at that point is a militant but non-lethal kind of hybrid between the two because magneto will happily kill whereas charles would never kill but i do love the line because it calls back to the first movie where magneto says killing one man is not enough and mystique says it never was for you i love Hmm. that 
Yeah, no, that's great. I think that it allows you to see that she's not exactly his. And that's important. He doesn't say, are you Charles's raven or mine? He tries to turn around like the one that I would want you to be is who you really are. I He's playing a mind game. Which he had always done in that first class. That was the whole reason she switched sides because he's like, I think your blue is beautiful. Yeah. And you don't have to hide yourself. He says getting inside people's heads isn't his power, but he is in like that Jim Jones cult leader kind of way. He's very good at it. He's a chess player. I felt that was an ironic statement because he does. He's the best at getting in people's heads. Yeah, I I agree. And uh, he has not the same power as Charles, but he has the same moxie, as it were. And and that she's caught in the middle. I love this triangle. I think this is the X-Men for me. This is what I really, really love. That Wolverine has only been a facilitator for us getting to this moment. I'm fine with. I didn't need for him to play a bigger role. But I do think... As great as this scene is, as he, as he's dragging her up and all of this, this is where the movie peaks for me. And that nothing they're going to do after this has as much impact, partly because the future's been changed, right? She did not assassinate Trask. Trask is alive. Trask is going to go sell his Sentinel program to Paranoid Nixon, a detail that I love that had me laugh. Of course, Nixon would buy into this. But they have changed the history as much as Wolverine can influence, and they're still going to get Sentinels. Right. And this let's discuss how this movie handles time travel, because there's a lot of different theories of time travel out there. I've done a lot of reading on time travel from actual physicists who say the movie that gets time travel most right is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I agree. That's where it's like, <laughs> you know, that's how time travel should really work. But you've got the Terminator one where the guy goes back, but you have no way of really knowing if the future has changed. You've got Back to the Future where, oops, I made my parents not meet and immediately photos start getting erased and my hand starts fading away. Here, Kitty Pride sets the rules that the universe will be changed when Wolverine wakes up. So the future continues. Time continues. It's not like you travel to the past and wake up at the same second. But whenever Wolverine wakes up, the past that was set the moment he left is the past he'll reach. So the question is, is it because Nixon bought the Sentinels that the future is still full of them? Or is it just because Wolverine never woke up? Look, it's because the movie's not over yet. I think that's the real reason. I think the movie reason is... Because one of my questions as as I was reflecting on this, why does Magneto end up going full Magneto after trying to stop Mystique? Oh, because they got Mystique's DNA through her blood, through that gun wound. And that's how they're able to continue with this Sentinel one. Because that, in the original timeline, it wasn't just that Mystique killed Trask. It was that right after that, Stryker tasers her and... I guess they experiment on her, but she f- eventually escapes, and that's how we get X1 and X2. Sorry, bringing up continuity. But that's how these future Sentinels are able to morph and take other mutants' powers, is because they're infused with their DNA. So I guess because they haven't resolved that conflict yet, that the movie still goes, I still think the future would be changed. They might be in Australia instead of China at that point. Like, they've changed a pretty major event, but I guess the conceit is that because they still have Mystique's DNA, that that future is still possible. And Terminator did that too. At the end of Terminator, the robot was stopped, but his arm allowed for the company to still build it. And I think they're playing with that 
in the second half is that by trying to change the future, they have in fact just played into it, that they're still going to have this doomsday scenario coming for the second half. And I like that Beast brings up another theory from actual quantum physics that you can't change time. That is the theory, is that if time travel were possible, you could go back in time and change something, but there would be an autocorrection. You could kill Hitler as a baby, and somebody else would still rise to that point and still make the concentration camps. And that no matter what they do, the Sentinels may come. It's how the movie opens, is with Patrick Stewart going, is this our fate? Are we destined to this? And that's the bleak moment at this point in the film where they're like, maybe we can't change it. Maybe no matter what we do, these Sentinels will be made. We've seen this before as a concept in The Terminator. Uh, My question is, why do they still need Jackman? in this story after this point. His whole point was to go back and avert this incident because that was their best hope of stopping the future. Now that the incident has come and gone and things are progressing as they shouldn't, why don't they let him come back? You know, he freaks out. I love what they give for him to do here. In that scene while Bastique is running from Magneto, he sees Stryker. And he has not a flashback, but a flash forward and has an out-of-body experience that makes him draw his bone claws and in the future, his steel claws, which hurt Kitty. And so now there's this whole, is he going to come out of this? And is she going to live? All of this tension is great. You know, they brought the I wouldn't say they, great. But. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I think they've given him a, a great moment. By great, do you mean like, oh, no, Kitty might lose her psychic connection? I never think that. Yeah. Therefore, it is not great. And, oh, no, Kitty's bleeding. I don't care. Not great. <laughs> Well, apparently you guys don't like Ellen Page, and I I'm not in love with her here, but I... No, it's the storytelling. I don't think the storytelling creates any tension. I think it's pl- plenty of tension, but what I'm wondering is why can't they let him come back? Why can't she stop, go get her wounds treated, and he be back in the future and hope that his self can rectify it and they'll proceed along a path that will stop the Sentinels? He is not going to be the one to stop the Sentinels in the second half of this movie, so him being in the past is irrelevant. I agree. I think that maybe events are already in motion, but he still has to have his little chat with Charles and Cerebro. That is really when the course is set, is when they try to find Mystique with Cerebro, and this is Charles. He's finally getting off the junk. He's leaving that smack alone. And going to lose his legs and gain his psychic powers. It's a weird line when, I mean, I don't know why Charles would not like Wolverine, but he goes, they sent the wrong person back. It's like, you aren't good enough. No, he's not good enough because even in this scene, it's not Wolverine that convinces Charles to embrace his powers again. It's Charles talking to himself in the future that it convinces him. Wolverine is the wrong person. He does very little in the majority of this film. Right. I agree with that. And that's even Wolverine agrees with that. He's like, you're right. Why don't don't you go talk to yourself? (laughs) Except it's putting people's butts in the seats. That's the only thing he's doing, bringing in money. (laughs) But I love that scene of Charles with Charles. I think that's a great scene. They teased it in the trailer. It plays out very well. You've got two great actors. I will call McAvoy great. I will call Stewart great. And to see them play off each other in this way... It's the passing of the torch scene. I mean, it's Shatner with Stewart in Generations, but it really works for me. But it's in that moment that Stewart sees in the past, Trask is still out there, Mystique is still trying to kill him, so you can't let Wolverine wake up because it might not be set. 
Okay. All right, that wasn't clear to me, but future Patrick Stewart X sees that they still need Wolverine in order to stop this. Not that they need him, but that he needs to stay back there because whatever is set when he wakes up is what their future will be. I don't know that that really makes sense. Honestly, what it does is it gives you no control. You go back so that you think you can manipulate something that people in that own time don't know is about to happen. You let go of the strings. They're going to do whatever they're going to do and you don't have that control. That doesn't mean that the future is inevitable. They could solve this problem. The future that was known is definitely not going to happen because Trask is still alive. But they still may have the Sentinels because the Sentinel program is there. Trask is still trying to capture Mystique. Just because he lived doesn't mean that it's changed to the point where the apocalypse won't come. Of course, but why can't the X-Men take care of it? Why would they need the future people getting involved when they're very well aware of what they need to do? Well, and Stuart, the X-Men do take care of it without the help of future Wolverine. Like, he doesn't do anything the rest of this film. Right. Now it's once... 1973 Charles Xavier embraces hope. Can we, can we, oh, all this hope stuff. We got it in Spider-Man 2. We got it in Man of Steel. I guess that's the new trope for superheroes. Hope. That's what they mean. That's what they represent. Yeah, but when, again, maybe it's just oversaturation where you see it in every damn film. But once he embraces hope, now he's back to old Charles, I guess, which he would have achieved at some point because we saw those old X-Men films where he ran the school again. He, I guess he wouldn't have achieved it in time, though, to change Mystique's course. But yeah, once Xavier embraces that path, we don't need Wolverine anymore. I think he would have done what he does without Wolverine or not. Okay, so help me out. Why is it important whether Mystique kills Trask or not? Because if she kills Trask, it's going to, A, allow her to be captured theoretically. No, it won't. It doesn't mean that anymore. And they still have her DNA. The other side of it is that the public assassination of a government arms maker by a mutant will set forth the mutant prejudice. Which has already happened. She's on camera. There were a ton of people taking Super 8 photos of her. Nixon is demonizing the mutants and has already greenlit the program. Whatever she is going to do, whether she kills or not, whatever that means for her personal character, is not going to influence the robot apocalypse. It is, though, because the way things happen at the end, and I think Magneto is as much of a part of it as anyone, cancels the Sentinel program. There will be no Sentinels in the future after what happens in the second half of this film. Yes, but that has nothing to do with whether Mystique kills or doesn't kill. Yes, it does, because the whole thing at the climax is if Mystique kills Trask, then Nixon will see it and say, we need these Sentinels to stop these mutants. Yeah, it actually sped up the Sentinel program, because originally those Sentinels weren't around until we got the liquid metal ones 50 years in the future. No, no, no. This new timeline, they sped it up. Because Trask was dead, so they they had to continue to research in the original timeline. Actually, that's not the original timeline. If you go to... Oh, I have to go to a website to figure out the original timeline. Yes, there is... uh, Great, great storytelling. (laughs) Trask-industries.com, there were Sentinels. And I guess that's what they were fighting against in the danger room. The difference is Marks 1 through 9 of the Sentinels were easily defeated by the X-Men. What we see in the future are the Mark 10s that they finally got it right with the Mystique DNA. I think that it's going to be universal that we don't want Sentinels. That Sentinel program is stopped just by them turning on Nixon with all the TV cameras on it. Mystique killing or not killing Trask is incidental to the future development of the robots after Paris, is my point. If Trask can convince him it's because this mutant did it, the mutant took control, if we'd stopped the mutants, then 
it would yeah, but Trask is like they can't take control. That's the whole point. I mean, I do love how Magneto takes control of these Sentinels as he infuses them with metal rods from train tracks so he can control them. I don't get how that works the mechanics, but I do love how that he sabotages the whole thing. Aren't the robots made out of metal anyway? No, no, no they call out there's no metal in them, so Magneto can't control them. In 1973, we could do that? I want to know why in 1973, Trask can make an app that detects mutants, but in the future, Xavier needs a whole room for it. <laughs> no continuity questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, what, I, there is a real continuity problem with that. that I, if you were in 1973... Oh, it is a problem if Stuart's bringing it up. <laughs> it's a, no, it's a problem that in 1973, you're telling me the world can do things that it's not ready for. I don't have a problem with comic book continuity, but in 1973, we couldn't make robots made out of plastic. We couldn't make robots at all in 1973, yeah. so you just gotta suspend your disbelief a little bit. I just feel like Eric needs to go marry Plastique, and then he'd own the world, right? So, I'm like, sure okay, that is a mutant. If it's not made out of metal, then you take care of it. Now, what about the designer of the Sentinels? We haven't talked about Bolivar Trask much. I admit I was a little bit shocked that this character didn't go a certain way. Being played by Peter Dinklage, when he was announced that he was cast, everyone said he's playing Puck, who is a little person <laughs> mutant from Canada. I did not hear those rumors. I, I don't know if we'd ever get a Puck, but we did get Patrock the Leaper in a Captain America film, so I guess Puck can't be that far behind. But yes, I, I did wonder, is he going to be a mutant? Why go with a little person that's not from the comic? I mean, I, I guess... Guess what? He's big in Game of Thrones now. I, I don't watch that, so I don't know much about his character. I think the last time I saw Dinklage, I think, was an elf. I like Peter Dinklage. You know, he had a long history in indie movies before he did Game of Thrones. I think that is what he's known and loved for now. I've seen a couple episodes of that, too, and he's really good in it, actually. he's Yes, he is a dwarf, and yes... I do think that means that he's cast for certain kinds of roles, but I'm really impressed by his talent. He always seems to step beyond that. You get over that, and you really just see really some terrific acting with him, usually. Why you would cast him in this role? I thought it was very ironic that someone that, yeah, is a dwarf would not have more sympathy for mutants or people that are perceived as different. That was an irony that I I guess makes him a complicated character. It would have been complicated if they would have brought it up or discussed it. I kept waiting for that. Like, why is this character, obviously, does he have little man syndrome? And that's why he's building giant tall robots to defeat people that are different. Like, I, I did want something more to happen and go into his motivations, why he is creating these robots more than I'm just scared of mutants like we've seen with so many other humans. The thing is, I look at his role in Elf, where he was this hotshot author who kicks Will Ferrell's ass and says, call me Elf again. And taking that into account here, I can think that it's a little bit too cliche to say he's a little person, so therefore his height must be his motivation for his character. And I'm, I'm thinking, because it's never brought up, is this just the ultimate in blind casting like people were upset in next year's fantastic four reboot johnny storm was cast as an african-american and there's one side that says anyone who would care about that is racist and there's the other side who says it's not true to the origins and the original vision of the character well here trask was never a little person but if you get an actor who's really good does he have 
to not be a dwarf. I mean, it becomes a non-issue. I, it really doesn't matter. But other than, yeah, my thinking that at some point he was going to acknowledge the similarity that he has with outsiders. I mean, but it, but he doesn't. And so, yeah, it, it, it's just a non-issue. And you just have a good performance by someone who is a character that ultimately doesn't get fleshed out that much. I think Mystique plays Trask more than Trask gets to play Trask as far as screen time goes. And I think Trask is best when... Mystique plays Trask. This is getting confusing. But yeah, when there's that moment where she has to disguise herself as Trask and she's looking over what happened to her friends, Angel and Azizel, and she's looking at those autopsy photos. And, and Dinklage, when he's, you know, his performance, he's sitting there, he's got the tear running down his cheek. I, th- th- that was pretty moving. And I, I guess I am sizes because I was expecting his size to play a role and it didn't. I, I think it's blind casting and he was pretty good in the role. Well, no, no, I'm just saying that was my interpretation. After I saw the movie, I was reading that Empire magazine, and he talked about scenes that he filmed where he did discuss his height and his view of mutants and things, and he kind of compared itself to Hitler, and how Hitler was going for the blonde hair, blue eyes ideal, but he wasn't blonde hair and blue eyed, so it's him trying to root out misfits when he wasn't. That's not in the film. Again, I know there's a lot of scenes cut from the film. So I think that perhaps any connection between being a little person and his motivation was cut. I don't mind it being cut. I kind of like the blind casting thing. He does get one scene. It's kind of out of place because this movie doesn't give people a whole lot of time to reflect. But there's a scene between Stryker and Trask where he's saying that this is the cause that will unite all mankind. And this kind of took me back to the first X-Men. And again, the Hitler thing, kind of like Hitler's war against the Jews, you unified Germany at a time when they were in their low point. Trask is viewing the war on the mutants as a rallying cause for the human species. Well, it sounds like there's going to be some good extras on the DVD then. I, I would li- have liked to have seen those scenes, but maybe this movie didn't need to be any longer. It certainly had enough going on that we don't miss those moments. But to be clear, this is not a character from the comics. He doesn't turn into something no, he, later. No, he is I'm, the creator of the Sentinels, but he's not a little person. It's just some scientist engineer guy that's in the comics. And he was in... X-Men The Last Stand, played by Predator's Bill Duke. Oh. Definitely not a little person. <laughs> yeah, I, I did find it funny. Senator Kelly, who we saw killed in the first X-Men one in the comic days of Future Past, that is the assassination that caused the Sentinels. But I guess they couldn't go back there because he was, well, he'd be dead in the future already. But I do like the way Trask, despite being a mutant, well, he's not really even a mutant hater, but a pro-human, is also a salesman. Because when Nixon wants the Sentinels, he's like, well, it could have been cheaper, but now it's more. He gets that extra money, and once he worms his way next to Nixon, he stays there all the way to the unveiling outside of the White House. Mystique still feels like she needs to assassinate Trask. Yes, they've had many painful scenes of trying to convince her, and she just looks annoyed. Yes. Which were dramatically dull. I do feel like this is where the movie really lagged, was this repetitious sort of saying, won't you do this? No. Won't you do this? No. But we get to the climax. She is impersonating a Secret Service man and is, has the gun ready, is going to do it. They've snuck in, and they're going to try and find her. <laughs> I love Wolverine's little aside when the metal detector doesn't go off because he doesn't have his adamantium yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very nice touch. The whole bone claw joke was was very nice. But, okay, so they're, they're scanning the thing. There's tension. I, I want to know what happens. Why do the Sentinels rebel? Is it because Eric Magneto is controlling them to rebel? Yes. 
He put metal in them, so he is now controlling them. Again, I don't know how that controls the circuitry. They're puppets. They're literally his puppets. No, 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 no. They're not his puppets because he says, go do what you're supposed to do. Right. And the programming kicks in. Maybe they're his puppets, except when they're doing what they're supposed to do, killing mutants. Because they do turn around and then start to attack him later on. And then he. That's okay. So now you're getting what I was getting at, which is if Magneto was controlling these robots, to create a bad PR for them so that they'll never happen, why is Hank running from them? Well, he turns the robot, which is programmed to kill mutants, towards Hank and Wolverine, and so it starts doing what the programming says, kill the mutants. That seems like a bad choice. It will be a bad choice. It's how this whole movie's (laughs) resolved. That is, I guess, one of the problems I have with the climax. I think it's a splendid setup. I love him picking the stadium up and creating a security perimeter around the White House. Is that what he's doing? I wondered why he took the football stadium with him. That seemed a little needless. No, yeah, it was to surround the entire White House so no one could get in there. No, the cops, the military couldn't get in. He he could have stopped them. He could have pushed their cars back. It's visually appealing. I get it. I, I would think, hey, look, there's a stadium hovering towards the White House. Let's get the military over there now before it lands. But... Hey, it was pre-9-11. They didn't have the bombers at the ready. <laughs> yeah, 70s, things move a little yes. slower here. <laughs> I don't know what was in place, and I'm not sure how long it took. But yeah, the Sentinels were there basically to guard and make sure no one came out. I also just think it was a stunt. Eric turns through the TV cameras and says as much. We get the one shot we do of Quicksilver back home, absorbing the fact that he's saying, this is a small demonstration of the power we can unleash. You know, don't screw with us is the message, and I'm going to do it in as dramatic fashion as I can. I'm basically going to assassinate your next president as well. I did JFK, and now I'm going to do Nixon. (laughs) They missed LBJ in between. Sure, but I I think that he's doing this more for the impact it's going to have on the rest of the world than he is about what he's accomplishing in here. He could take out these people in a much less dramatic fashion. This is what he's trying to to say. And this is my question. Does he feel... Remember, the the great dramatic moment is him turning on Mystique and trying to kill her for trying to kill one human. Like, now he's doing the same thing. Does he just feel he's changed the future at this point? Does he not care? Is he in a blind rage? Like, what is his motivation for going full-on Magneto now? I don't know that either, because... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it's not just me, then. And you saw it twice! Yeah, My only thinking is Magneto is so convinced of his own power. He's so megalomaniacal that he's like, screw the future. If I use enough power, I'll define the future. That's the only, I wish there was a line to that effect. That's the only thing I can guess. Plus, he's still planning on killing Mystique. They only have her blood, but Trask does say, we need her brain. We need her spinal fluid. We need more. Right. Which is weird that Rebecca remains Stamos was then still Mystique. I said up top, ignore continuity. <laughs> you guys aren't. You can't. I it's can't. not in your I DNA. Can't. You guys are this. There's no way you can let this go. That's I. There's so much of it. It's be- all because of now playing. You made me watch so many of these films. I can't do it at this point. <laughs> I really, whatever is not matching up with the lesser inferior X-Men, I'm fine with. This is a very strong movie. Even despite the fact that the second half isn't as good, I'm still very much invested in this movie. This is, I still think, a great ride that I'm having. I'm just having problems with the logic of what they can accomplish in the second half. That's all I'm saying is I don't understand the stakes 
of what Mystique can or cannot do now that things have progressed beyond Paris. And because Sentinels are attacking in the future, let's keep in mind, they went Star Wars. This climax is happening on two fronts. We're focusing on Washington, D.C. because that's all that matters. But we're also seeing everybody die a second time. Again. In the future as the Sentinels attack. And the whole point now is to just defend Kitty Pride and Wolverine long enough so that they can keep that link to the past and the past can be changed. So because that future, we're still seeing it happen. And when the past was changed last time, everyone disappeared. Because Kitty Pride hasn't disappeared and Wolverine hasn't disappeared and the Sentinels haven't disappeared, I'm taking it, the future is not changed. And so we're seeing this and... Well, perhaps dramatically, it's not as fulfilling. I actually really like this second hour because after Charles meets Charles, we have like 40 minutes of nonstop action. We have train scenes, and then we have all of this going on in D.C., and we have the attacks in the future. This is constant action, and it's good action. I don't quite know why Storm is shooting Bishop with lightning. Jacob, you've never explained his power set to me, but... Oh, let me explain, because he absorbs power and energy and then could direct it somewhere else, which is weird because then the Sentinels just fill him up with energy and kill him. It's like Lawnmower Man 2. They just have to overload him. (laughs) Everything goes back to Lawnmower Man 2. Yes. (laughs) So I'm enjoying the action, and I'm going with it narratively. If the future, if the Sentinels are still attacking, then the past isn't changed. It won't change... Until Mystique changes her mind. This is all about Mystique. Question, why does Mystique change her mind? Does finally Charles say, please don't, one time too many? And she goes, okay. This is what I think it is, is that Charles finally stops trying to get in her head. That I, That is, I think, Mystique's, she's trying to become her own independent woman. She's been manipulated by on both sides by men. And finally, Charles says, you know what? I'm just going to have faith in you to do what you're going to do. Hopefully it's the right thing. See you later. And he disappears. That's all I could figure out, why she finally doesn't pull the trigger. I think that's part of it. And I'd also like to believe that Magneto has kind of looked like an ass to her as well. That, like, she can recognize that what he's doing and the fact that he's endangered his own mutant friends uh, is not something that she wants to support. So, you know, assassinating, that's that's what he would want her to do. She's going to make her own choice. And it's, I accept it as much as I can. I agree. It's, she's been able to freed to be whoever she is without influence. And so we realize it's Jennifer Lawrence and Jennifer Lawrence is a, is a movie star and a good person. And so she's not going to play hunger games here. (laughs) And the disappointing thing to me though, is that the future is changed based upon a character arc for mystique. But as I mentioned earlier, I feel Jennifer Lawrence plays this. So one note that I don't see an arc, the arc I love in this movie. And I want to say the word love is Xavier's arc from mutant serum addict to (laughs) the person who would go on to lead and guide and train Scott and Jean and Wolverine. That is the great arc of this movie. So I guess that arc means he won't control Mystique and that's enough to change it. That is the only arc in this story. I mean, what is, we'll get a vision of the future. It's very peaceful. Did Magneto, like, was he jailed up forever after this? We see Xavier lets him fly away after he tries to kill the president. Like, yeah, what is the big change here besides Xavier? I don't know. He learns to put his trust in someone. This should be Mystique's movie. It's, mm-hmm. it's Wolverine's movie, but it's all about Mystique. But then it's Xavier that gets the character arc. It is all over the place. I think it is Charles's movie at the end of the day, even though they feature 
pictured Wolverine as being the conduit for all of the change. You know, the first Origins movie was Wolverine. Then I feel like First Class was X-Men Origins Magneto. And this one, yeah, I think it is about Charles. How did Charles... I still don't know how he went bald. He's still got a long head of hair at the end of this. (laughs) That's just genetics. McAvoy (laughs) said he had an idea of reading the script of something that would happen that would make Xavier go bald and Singer didn't go for it. But McAvoy's hopeful he gets to shave his head next time. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I feel like that's still to come. But otherwise, all the origin of him and who he would become has explained to me in this movie. And so, yeah, maybe Mystique can have her Mystique origins and we can find out all these things you guys are unsatisfied with here. I I don't think it was entirely her movie. I think she's the biggest star for the young demographic right now. She packs in young girls in ways that they may not come to this movie otherwise. But it's, yeah, at the end of the day, for me, yeah, the takeaway is Charles more than anything. But the script makes this Mystique's movie. That's not us trying to place this, oh, because it's Lawrence. It is the script that says this is Mystique's movie. It is her that causes the future that's so bad. Yes. Right. Mystique's choice determines the future. I wish this movie would explain to me her character arc. And while I already talked about the deleted scenes, after seeing this movie, I went back to watch the trailers for it to cut some lines for our opening credits and found scenes are in there that weren't in the movie, including one of Wolverine talking to Mystique. The two of them just sitting down to have a chat where Wolverine says, you're a ruthless bitch, and (laughs) Mystique says, don't pull any punches. So I bet, I really bet that one of the scenes they cut, much like Amazing Spider-Man, where we complained that there were characters with no motivations, and then you watch the trailer, there's a whole subplot that's cut that could have given them some. I bet there's a motivation that in this third act is right before the climax, Wolverine and Mystique have a sit-down that helps define an arc, at least for Mystique, if not for Wolverine, maybe for both of them. But it didn't make it in the film. Yeah, or at least give Wolverine something to do during this third act. But I feel that, yes, Charles has a character arc. I even think Beast has a character arc. It's subtle, but I really like (laughs) projecting. Why did Beast stick around? Beast is also hiding from his mutant power the way Charles is. I kind of like that arc, that he finally beasts out in public for real, whereas he hides it earlier. I like Beast's arc. But Wolverine and Mystique... The two biggest stars in this film have no arc, and for Wolverine, I'll take it. He's had so many arcs by this point, he's done growing. (laughs) Two solo movies. Yeah, we're done with him. (laughs) But with Mystique being the crux of the film, not giving us why, it's a real problem for me. Here's a further problem with Mystique, and this goes into this whole ending. Okay, we we haven't talked about Wolverine in a while. You notice that? Why? Because he was shot full of rebar and thrown in the Potomac, which is is actually pretty, that was a painful scene to watch. I did read online that where the rebar went was exactly placed to mimic when Magneto pulled the adamantium out of Wolverine in the comics. That is some detail I didn't notice, but I'll, I'll go with it. You know, here's the thing, though. So I'm like... Okay, so Wolverine, stuck at the bottom of a river, he's going to die because he can't get air. He can't regenerate. He doesn't have to breathe. He doesn't? I feel like that's not true. Any (laughs) any cellular death that would occur from lack of oxygen would be instantly healed. He can't move. He, He passes out, but he doesn't need to breathe. 
So no Sentinel can kill him, right? It, it, all his friends can die, but they can just keep zapping him and he'll always come back. That he's immortal. Pretty much. He, he you see he's getting some gray hair. So yeah, he will, really uh, he, yeah. he just ages slow, but he And one of the powerful moments in the Days of Future Past comic is Wolverine does die in the future. Sentinel does disintegrate him and it's it's a powerful moment. But here, so He's just floating at the bottom of the river. I, I don't know. I'm like, oh, man, he's going to cause a time loop because his younger self died. So he's not going to be there in the future to go back in time. But then because he doesn't go back in time, he won't be there to die in the past. So he'll be able like, but Mystique shows up disguised as Striker to pull him out of the river. Like, why? Why does she do that? Is it so he gets pulled out of the river so he could travel back in time? Or, I guess, travel forward in time? Isn't that the tease for the next movie? I really would have liked it better if it had been Stryker himself, because he was paying very close attention to Wolverine in that scene in Paris. He saw the bone claws, and he kind of got this look like, hey, I could do something with that. So Yeah, I, I almost thought, like, because Stryker turns nice, that, like, oh, he's changed, too. He's not going to be a jerk in the future. No, I thought he was pulling him out because, hey, we have this Weapon X program, and I want that one. <laughs> to make him go fight in Vietnam and <laughs> Origins. Stop with the Origins. <laughs> it's this film's fault, It Stuart. never happened. <laughs> it's this film's fault. I know it, this film doesn't believe it happened either. Yeah. Which is probably for best. Which is why we get the ending we do. We, you're, as you've already implied, we can get back to the way things were before Brett Ratner f***ed uh, it up. We can get back to what made people happy and like the X-Men. And I think that's cool. I mean, that's, I want a happy ending here. I didn't want to see everyone annihilated. I would have liked a more ambiguous ending. Did they fix things or not? Like, that is such a fairy tale happy ending. Like, look guys, we're back to Singer's X-Men. We got Jean Grey, we got Rogue, we got, with her powers, I, I don't think she's touching Iceman there with her skin. No, she's wearing the gloves. I had to pay attention on the movie I could actually see, but it's, it's blinking you miss her. I have a Empire magazine with her on the cover. They cut yeah, a I'm bunch of scenes from her with the future. There's like a half an hour of this movie on the floor. Yeah, I read there was more of her. Oh, she had a lot of other scenes? Yeah. Oh, wow. Amid all these happy returns where we're reassured that everything is back to the vision that Singer had for us, I happen to notice a character I've never seen before except at the beginning of the film. If you remember in the post-apocalyptic future, there's this blonde kid with a hoodie that kind of digs out an X belt buckle, and they, we don't linger on him too long, and it looks like his face is made out of CGI, although I don't know why. It just looks like a normal person. And then we see him playing in the school, running around here. Do you guys know who that is? Is that someone I should pay attention to for future reference? Uh, you know what? I totally forgot about that opening scene until you just mentioned it. I was wondering, what was that glowing belt buckle? Yeah, I... What is this? I don't know. I didn't even notice him at the end. I noticed him at the end on my second viewing, just because I'd seen the opening twice now, <laughs> and I thought he died at the beginning because he's digging up this X, and I'm like, what is this? Like a hatch to an X bunker or something? I don't know what the manhole cover he found was, but I thought that the Sentinels found him and killed him immediately. Like this movie opens with the death of a young child, and now we're saying, don't worry, audience, young child lived, you can go home with a smile on your face. Okay, but he's not some badass that I'm going to be impressed with later. This is not a character that people know and love. Mm, I'm going to guess no. <laughs> okay. Why CGI the face then? I don't understand that. Why not? I don't think they did. I just think it was a weird shot with like lighting and things. I don't think that was a CGI face. Okay. But then again, I barely could see my screen. <laughs> 
But yeah, it, it goes back to, except it's what, 2023. It, 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 what feels weird to me, you know, with J.J. Abrams, he reboots Star Trek. He destroys all continuity by this time travel story. But he also changes the status quo. Like, the planet Vulcan is, like, destroyed. There's, like, what, three Vulcans alive. There's a major status quo change. Here, they blow up all continuity to go back to the status quo. It just doesn't feel satisfying to me. I think they have done with this a reboot of the timeline akin to Star Trek 2009. The key being they want to show that they did prevent the horrible future, but we don't know how they got there. This enables them to tell the stories in between. Yeah, now we know what the next sequel is. <laughs> and, I mean, somebody asked me on Twitter if I thought that Fox would have two X-Men franchises, one with the first class crew and one with the singer crew. And nope, first class is dead. <laughs> no, the future is dead. Really? Yeah. Okay. Apocalypse is going to be Fastbender and McAvoy again. And that's what I suspected. It actually did feel like a goodbye in these moments. That's why they're so nostalgic. When we see Storm and I'm like, oh, goodbye, Storm. You know, like, I just, I feel like, yeah, when Kitty is, you know, teaching a class, I'm like, okay, goodbye. Like, I, this felt like the final bow. They were saying, we aren't going to use this gimmick anymore. We've been hanging on to this old crew as long as we can, but kind of in a Star Trek Six way. Let's send them off, and we'll try to hope that what we have here now is strong enough for its own series. It's going to have to fly. It's like Star Trek. They're going to have to make one without Leonard Nimoy at some point. Yeah, I, I think it's a nice, happy ending button, but it still tells me, you know, Wolverine says, I don't know what's happened for the past 50 years. Tell me. We know there's going to be a school. Well, guess what? These are X-Men movies. They're not going to get that far away from the status quo. I'm reading the current X-Men series of comics, and guess what? They're all still at that freaking school. There's going to be a school for mutants, and it's going to be the world outside our window. But what happened in the last 50 years? And maybe the next movie is going to start with Patrick Stewart in the hover chair. I love that he finally got a hover chair. <laughs> and Wolverine and Patrick Stewart going, oh, you mean you don't remember this big thing that happened in the 80s? And if Fox <laughs> is lucky, you were there, Wolverine. Yes, of course he'll be there. <laughs> you, you know, I, I feel like the comics, yeah, that is that is one of the things I don't like about comics. I, I tend to read more limited series because I like definitive endings. I like things to change and not stay the same. And I feel with films, even with these comic book series, that I think that's part of the reason I like The Last Stand. They're like, okay, here's the third part of a trilogy. Let's just throw it all out there. Let's kill off some people. Like, it, it feels like there's stakes. Now, this ending, it feels like there have never been stakes now. It's just happy fairy tale ending. What, what's Magneto doing? What? Because he still seemed pretty murderous. Like, we don't get a scene of him at the end. I do love, when we're watching the climax, there's that scene where after... McKellen's Magneto, he gets impaled by some sentinel debris. He's like, I wish we had we spent more time and didn't fight so much. Like, I want that I wanted to see. I liked that Mystique and Magneto weren't there at the school at the end. That is the real question, isn't it? Are they just off camera? Is Magneto teaching metallurgy? Or <laughs> are they still at war? I love the openness of that. You see this as a bow on the end. I see this as... There are stories to tell. And not only that, I don't know that the future has been changed. Keep in mind, Trask is arrested for selling those secrets. So those secrets are out there. Even if the U.S. didn't proceed, the secrets remain. And although the work may be incomplete, I'm sure it's going to create some new 
awful robot that they will have to face. We're still going to get conflict, Jacob. I don't think that they're saying it's a utopia. Well, after such a dark and gritty beginning, I don't know. I would have liked this to be more serious. If you want to get my butt in the seat for the next film, let me think that there's still danger, that things weren't solved. But I know everything's going to turn out all right, at least up until 2023 for the X-Men. Uh, no, no, no. What about the last scene? What about the credits? Didn't you see something happened in ancient Egypt? <laughs> yeah, we go further back in time. This, look. I've read comic books. I know all about Apocalypse. I wouldn't have got what this scene was. I had to actually go to the internet to figure this scene out. I have a giant Apocalypse statue in my recording studio, and I'm like, who's the albino? <laughs> yes, it, you said at the beginning it looked like a woman. It did look like a woman. Yeah, that is Apocalypse in his original form. He is like the first mutant that appeared way, way back in ancient Egypt, and he's always got the four horsemen with him because this is comics, and we got to be literal. So, of course, Apocalypse will have the four horsemen with them, and you see those four horsemen in the background as he constructs the pyramids. But to the steward, I'm sure it means nothing. Now you know what it feels like, you know, it's the <laughs> way I feel. Like, I, I'm like, oh, it's just another one of those ambiguous endings that I'm like, okay, I waited through some very long credits. I mean, yeah. <laughs> super long credits. I started reading. I've never seen ADR performers credited in a film before, but here, all the ADR people got their names. Yeah, there are a lot of names in these credits. It's a huge list. And every effects guy, every guy who touched a keyboard at every effects studio in Hollywood is named. Yeah, and some of them were in my audience. They were applauding themselves. <laughs> I mean, people got excited. And I get that. You you should have your moment. But give me my scene mid-credits then, please. <laughs> I'd like to go use the bathroom. And no, it didn't make any sense to me. But I, I do like the idea of playing with time. I do like feeling like, good, we're going to keep going back in history. But I think that that's been effective. The best X-Men movies have been the ones that have played with our known historical truth. It's also why I like Doctor Who back in the day. I think... I don't know how, and I don't know even who, but somehow some of these X-Men are going to be involved in a plot that goes all the way back to ancient Egypt, and that's cool. Actually, well, yes, it goes back to ancient Egypt. The pre-production stuff has me really excited for the next one because it's going to be the X-Men first class. They've done the 60s. They've done the 70s. This one's going to be in the 80s, and what we saw in ancient Egypt well, A, after the frickin' teaser at the end of the Wolverine, that means nothing. My own little <laughs> mental retcon is they're saying, Wolverine, we need you to come with us because Sentinels are starting to be a problem, and that was the beginning of what leads to what we see. I don't know. Maybe when the DVD comes out, I'll get some cutscenes. But I'm not even sure that Apocalypse will be this actor or look this way or even go to ancient Egypt. The CGI creation, you mean? I have no faith in Fox to be beholden to this scene, but I am excited about seeing X-Men in the 80s, my favorite decade. Yeah, that sounds fun. And I didn't know, I didn't get that from watching this preview, but knowing that that's where they're going with it, knowing that I'm going to get Fassbender, McAvoy, great. And Lawrence, she signed for a third one if she likes it or not. Terrific. <laughs> I love her too. Keep them all. And that's great. Hey, they signed Blink for five. Oh, good. I, actually, I thought she had a cool power. I liked what they did with Blinks. So I don't mind that. And I mean, that is what this is going to lead to. They're saying that in the next one, they've announced Channing Tatum has been signed to play Gambit. They're going to change some <laughs> continuity again. Gambit, forget Origins. Does that mean I'm going to have to have this conversation again with you about how they did this in Origins and rah, 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 rah? You know what? I kind of like Tatum when he plays, a, a, you know, in 21 Jump Street, pretty good. Like, I, he's got some comedic chops to him. I kind of look forward to that. 
I can't help but laugh at that scene. What's up with Sleepy Man? He's like the Mexican Wolverine. <laughs> I am Jeff. Yeah, that got a big laugh right before this film. <laughs> yeah, so I'm for that, but they're already saying he's going to probably cameo in the next movie, X-Men Apocalypse, and then there's going to be a Gambit spinoff. And whoever the head honcho was at Fox who put the kibosh on the Deadpool movie, Lauren Schuler Donner, she has been fighting for a Deadpool movie with Ryan Reynolds for years. There's been a regime change. They're about to greenlight the Deadpool spinoff. They're talking of Jackman. All this stuff from Origins. Are we getting a Blob spinoff? <laughs> Well, there's go- there's going to be more continuity ignored, as it's going to be the Deadpool from the comics, not the Good. mouthless, headless <laughs> creature from the end. And Jackman is going to sign with James Mangold, uh, directing and writing a third Wolverine film. Yeah, it, regime change or not, the times have changed. Avengers has made it necessary for studios to think larger than their single superheroes. And yeah, I'm going to throw the Fantastic Four in there too. Fox owns that property. I know that's coming back. Yes, but they have said it is not in the X-Men universe. I don't believe them. I know that they will cross over. (laughs) And I do not believe that for one second. That is a lie that they're sitting on so that they can surprise us next year. I'm not surprised. No, no. They said it doesn't make the Fantastic Four special if there's X-Men in the universe. That doesn't mean later they might not cross it over, but the makers of Fantastic Four said Fox wanted them to cross over, and they're not. We'll see. I'm not convinced by this pre-press subterfuge. It's the same screenwriter, and it's the next year, and they can see around them that Spider-Man's planning spinoffs, and Avengers has their own spinoffs. They know which way the wind's blowing. There's going to be alternate Marvel universes, and this is Fox's. And would you be excited to see the X-Force movie? I mean, I said they signed Blink to five. They're looking at Blink and Bishop and Warpath to get their own film. We're going to have to see them all. It doesn't matter if we're excited or not. No, I'm not excited for all. I've never been a huge X-Men fan because I like singular characters. All these characters trying to figure out who nameless spiky guy in Vietnam is is not fun for me. So <laughs> I'm not, I've never just been a huge X-Men fan. So uh, I'll see him because I have to for the podcast, but none of this excites me except a Deadpool movie. For me, it's about character interactions and with ensembles, as long as the characters play well together, great. If it's all about their hair color and their suit and their little, you know, bendy finger or whatever, you know, like all of that gimmickry that they use to define one from the other, they better have more are going on than that. It, it can't get away with just being last stand where I saw a bunch of mutants and didn't get to know any of them. If they try and if they build that universe, great. Right now, the cast, the ensemble that I like is the first class ensemble. And so make the others as good as that and you got my money. What about for this one? Were you excited by this one? Jacob Stewart? I know which way Stewart's going. Jacob, you got me questioning. Do you recommend... X-Men Days of Future Past. Yeah, I think it's obvious that I had some issues with this one. <laughs> That's So even if I recommend it, it's not going to be a strong recommend. I'll just put that out there now. It was a struggle. Is this recommendable? That is the question. Is this a movie I'd go see again or ever again <laughs> once it comes out or it's on TV? No, it's not a film I ever want to see again. But I think when I try to Put this in context with all these X-Men films, not Generation X, anything looks good next to that, not Wolverine Origins, anything looks good next to that, but the ones I've recommended, is this worse than X-Men films I've recommended? Now, I I think my big problem is 
that first class film is so good. So this is the one, really, I don't count Wolverine as an X-Men film. So I put this next to first class. And that first class film, whether it was Vaughn, whether it was you, Bull, whoever directed that, if I got that end product that I got, that's my expectation. And this does not live up to those expectations, that strong acting, the stronger storytelling, the fun in that film. Even though this is in the 70s and we got heroin junkie Xavier, you can still have that sense in there. But, you know, when I look at the other Singer films, X1, X2, they're good films. Are they blow me away? Do I go back and revisit them often? No, I, I said in Last Stand, that is the one out of those that original trilogy, that is the one I watch the most. So is this worse than the original X-Men? I mean, that obviously this has a much bigger budget. There's a lot more ambition here. I I feel the storytelling here is is a lot more clunky. We get about 40 great minutes, I think, from when Quicksilver shows up till Relieve Paris. That's the heart of this film, all the rest. I have a lot of issues with, but is it not recommendable? Uh, I guess not. Uh, sure, why not? If it, if you if you've enjoyed the X Men films, you're going to enjoy this one. If you want an action film, yeah, this works as an action film. So yeah, I guess it's worth seeing. It's not so bad that like I was upset that I saw it and I demanded my money back. It it was an X-Men film in much like X1 and X2, which I don't think those are as strong as people remember, especially X1. It's around that level. So I recommended that. I'll I'll give this a weak recommend. Stuart. Woo! I hope you never recommend me. Wow, that hurt. <laughs> That stung. My face is stinging right now from that recommend. I can't believe it. I can't believe it was that hard for you. You know, I'm going to just put it out there. Whether I recommend or not recommend something is usually the least essential thing that I feel like I'm doing when I'm in the show. And I agree with you. That's why I like, I'm like, eh, go ahead and see it. it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It sounds to me like for whatever you're saying, recommend or not, you didn't enjoy it. And that's a shock to me because I feel like this is a highly entertaining film. And is it first class? No, it's second class. It's coach. It's not as good as last time, but I'm still flying. Hey, I'm still on the air. I'm still going somewhere. I'm still enjoying the ride. I'm not going to ding the movie for not being the second greatest superhero movie of all time. I think that this is a real treat. I wouldn't have imagined before this recording that anyone would find this movie unpleasant to watch. To me, what I was thinking about a lot was Watchmen, a movie we haven't reviewed yet, but took historical periods and showed us what superheroes did at that time. When we cover this movie, I dare say it won't be half of what these films are. I love that they're taking this and making this X franchise go decade by decade through our history and telling an alternative one with comic book characters. I think this is the way to go. They've assembled the right team. This is, would be in my top 10 as well. I think that for me, I'll go ahead and say it. I think it's better than Avengers. I like this movie better than Avengers. Yeah. And so high recommend. And I, I'm shocked. I'm shocked at the level of pushback I got from both of you on it. Well, I think I kind of came down the middle a lot on this, and I'll come down the middle on the recommends. I'm giving it a solid recommend. Absolutely, it's a recommend. It has become my second favorite X-Men film. It is second class, but first class is still my favorite. This knocks X2 off the perch of 
second place, and this one takes its place in second. I liked a lot of things that went on here, and I wasn't hung up on continuity. The reason I started this conversation with continuity is because midway through my first watching of this movie, I realized Fox doesn't care, so I'm not going to let that ruin my time. I'm trying to become less about continuity and just, is this story good? But I still want to bring it up for our listeners, because if I don't bring it up, then they bring it up. So I definitely think it's recommendable. I think this has great action. This may be the best looking superhero movie ever. The money, it's on the screen. That opening fight with Blink stamp through the portal and Human Torch going nuts and Iceman and all of it. Whatever. (laughs) Even I don't care and I buy the toys. Could they not get Pyro back or or what? (laughs) I think it looks great, but what really let me down were the performances of Jennifer Lawrence and Hugh Jackman, two people who I normally really like. So I'm really saddened that both of them seem to be phoning it in and pushed in the background in the script, but I like Charles's story. I like Magneto's story. I love, love the Quicksilver scene. So there's a lot in here to like. But there are things in here to not like, such as some story logic gaps. Not continuity, logic. And I think there's a difference between there that sometimes I'd be pointing out logic and it would come out as continuity. But there's just holes in the script. It doesn't feel as tight. There's a dourness to this entire event. I mean, I look at Terminator 2. Terminator 2 was dark. This thing is mopey. And that's just less fun to watch in the middle of kick-ass fights. But no, this is a really good movie. I strongly recommend you see it. Not at an AMC theater, because they f***ed it up. But go to a Regal or something. (laughs) Wow, that was an endorsement I wasn't expecting. (laughs) I would not recommend. But I do wonder if they will continue with all these franchise plans, because when First Class came out, they did a course correction to bring back some old cast members. This one costs so much. Are they looking at this as a real long-term investment where they just know it's going to lose money and they're fine with it because it is going to sow the seeds for the future films that maybe won't cost as much? They'll do the solo films on lower budgets, but because of this, they'll have like that type of Avengers bump? Or how that's really going to play? Or are the shareholders and the studio chiefs going to look and go, you know, we needed to make a billion to break even, and... I mean, this one's opening lower than The Last Stand. Oh, no. Yeah, the answer is no. They're, everyone's talking a game here right now. Everyone's like, well, we're going to have one out every week. And then one on Netflix. You know, I, I, th- <laughs> this is all exaggeration. These are, these are studio heads that are in a, in a pit fight themselves. That would be maybe more entertaining than some of these movies is watching these studios compete for, oh, I have a Sinister Six movie and it's going to blow your Avengers 2 out of the water. I mean... <laughs> right. <laughs> that should be... It would be a comedy. Yeah, these people don't know what they're talking about. They look at things in terms of investments and they don't understand the properties and, and what they can really equal, I don't believe. But I think your question is, do we have this slate of movies that we're going to have to review coming at us? No. I think a lot of this will drop off. I don't know which ones, but yeah, Solo Gambit movie, (laughs) X-Force, all of that stuff. Some of it will come together and some of it won't. And I don't believe that we'll become a superhero review show where every week we've got a new one to cover. Just this year. I hope not, just because the theatrical release editing is a killer. It is, and I don't even do it. (laughs) 
which is good because for the next couple weeks I get a little bit easier. We're not going to be doing a theatrical release on the main feed for a while. We do have the donation shows. Our Matrix podcasts are out and we're doing the theatrical Jupiter Ascending for anyone who supports our show with a donation of $10 or more. We really appreciate your support. We have no sponsors, no advertisers. We need you, the listener, to support our show to keep reviewing podcasts week after week. And it's like the PBS pledge drive. PBS wouldn't be on the air if people didn't call in and pledge during those drives. We wouldn't be podcasting if some people don't get out there and donate for us. And we have thank yous. We could print you up tote bags or make water bottles if you'd prefer, but we do bonus podcasts. And for $10 or more, you get the four Matrix reviews. They're all done. You can get them Netflix style. I'll just email you links to all four of those reviews now. And then after it's in theaters and I've had time to edit it, <laughs> Jupiter Ascending. And last Friday started our gold donation series for those who really, we know it can be tough, but to dig deep and find $25 or more, you get eight more reviews on top of the Matrix and Jupiter Ascending, the eight Planet of the Apes films. The first one went out last Friday. There's been some great discussion on Twitter and Facebook about it. And this Friday, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, our review will be out. And there's been some snark about that movie on the Facebook page. So I'm looking forward to people getting to hear that review. Oh, that's a weird one. Yeah. If you thought this, these mutants were crazy, you just wait till Friday. But on the main feed, next week, Stuart, you're getting a superhero relief. You're actually getting to talk about a movie you've really wanted to talk about for years. I'm actually intimidated. I don't think, you know, usually I can take the comfortable stance of, oh, yeah, I have to, you know, talk about some superhero thing that I don't really care about. This is one of my favorite movies of all time from one of my favorite filmmakers. And I got to put all of that into one show. 2001 A Space Odyssey. A controversial, mind-blowing, amazing experience. Not only will we be reviewing it, but after that we're going to do its sequel, which, guess what? I don't like as much, but still really want to talk about. And I will also, on Books and Nachos, be covering all four Arthur C. Clarke Odyssey adventures. 2001, 2010, 2061. Sounds kind of like an off year, doesn't it? Then 3001. And I just thank you for doing Books and Nachos for a while to give me time to edit podcasts like last week's Godzilla and this one. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I needed that break from books. And I don't think we've told the fans at large what we're doing beyond that. But let's go ahead and do that. You have been doing some Stephen King at Books and Nachos. We're going to get back to that as a lead-up, really, to Transformers. What better way to talk about the new Mark Wahlberg, Michael Bay movie than to talk about Stephen King's earlier effort to make trucks look scary in Maximum Overdrive and in a sci-fi cable movie I've never heard of, Trucks. I heard about it like a decade after it was released. (laughs) That's how low that one was. I was into King and I didn't even know they made that thing. I'm sure it's going to be horrible, but I can't imagine it being worse than Stephen King's directorial debut. So if you like us to trash on a movie, I can guarantee you tune in for (laughs) Maximum Overdrive. I don't know. I haven't seen that movie in like 15 years, but I might recommend it in one of those I realize it's bad, but I enjoy it kind of ways. The Brown Arrow. Yeah, I remember parts of it from (laughs) when I was like nine and watching it on cable. I mean, it's got Emilio and Yardley Smith. (laughs) That's right. Bart Simpson. Yes, it's true. Lisa Lisa. Simpson. Oh, Lisa? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the Green Goblin. 
Don't forget the Green Goblin. No Spider-Man. Oh, yes, on the front of the truck. I'm like, I don't remember Defoe in that. Oh, yeah. I mean, literally, the Green Goblin. Yeah. <laughs> Tune in. I, I guarantee you it'll be a fun laugh. And, and uh, it'll scare the hell out of you. <laughs> <laughs> but then after we do Transformers Age of Extinction, I guess I lost the bet. We're going to keep you at fighting at the bay. Comic books and bay. Your two favorites. Yeah, more Michael Bay. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Apparently he has a handle in a property that I've... Well, I've seen a little bit of when I babysat. (laughs) I can't believe that we're doing this series. I don't know what I will have to say about the three original Jim Henson Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the animated TMNT, and then, yes, this new whatever you call it with... I think the bimbo came back, didn't she? Megan Megan Fox. Fox. Yeah, Megan Fox is in it too. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) And Will Arnett. Really? Yeah. I'm looking forward to Mutant Ninja Turtles, both for seeing you squirm. Ugh. And I remember liking those films when I was a teenager. So we'll see if but I still do. But you're not a teenager anymore. <laughs> I like pizza. I feel like I have something in common with them, but I'm not sure what else. And then finally, we'll be kicking off the last leg of the so long. Yeah, Lord. Just the night shift book. We're going to be doing nine Children of the Corn films. Plus, we got some theatrical releases to break it up. Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes. Yep. Big Hero 6. Yep. Uh, Kingsman. You mentioned that one as well. I'm hoping Kingsman's my favorite film of the year, although it's a film I normally wouldn't see. It's the talent involved that is making me see it from the writer and director of Kick-Ass. So, yeah, lots of varied stuff there. And more surprises, too. We will be announcing more, I think, on Jupiter Ascending. So if you're a donor, you're going to know exactly what we're doing for the rest of the year in just a month. Hopefully we can figure it out by then, and that's not even a joke. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? (laughs) And remember, it's your support that keeps this show going. So if you're excited to hear those things we're doing, please donate. Go to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top. And donate to support us. So, Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me. And we'll talk to you next week, bub. Today's attack was only our first salvo. Our war will rage. Your cities will not be safe. Your streets will not be safe. You will not be safe. And to my fellow mutants. I make you this offer. Join us or stay out of our way. Thank you for listening to the now-playing X-Men movie retrospective series. We are the future, Charles, not them. They no longer matter. Part of our Marvel Comics movie series. Told you if you came down this road, you would like what you found. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another movie review. The professor trusted you were smart enough to discover this on your own. He gives you more credit than I do. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as the Avengers films, Spider-Man movies, and many more, as well as reviews of other series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, and Tron. We also have individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Inception, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. This is also crazy-sounding. You said the same thing about my other ideas four years ago, but everything I said I could do, I've done. And now you're a chicken millionaire. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, 
Be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. Show's over. Show's never over for us. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Me and my kind. The Brotherhood of Mutants. Links to our social media pages are found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Do I look like a man who exaggerates? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't you have any decency? Where's your sense of gratitude? I'm telling you, I have needs! I think I'm just here to be your dream grid guru? I want out of here! I want to have the big time! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. The whole world's going to hell. You're just going to sit there? Let's go. Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. They say you're the bad guy. Is that what they say? Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or 20th Century Fox. The Marvel characters and all the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. Oh, you get the point! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Apparently we have some issues with authority. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Class dismissed. Did we just lose the feed? Are we still alive? Bobo Stewart, another great name. And I'm just going to start calling you Bobo Stewart. I I, I think it's Boo Boo. <laughs> Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Like, yeah, that's... <laughs> That's the real title. That's the real title, guys. I'm not making that up. You know the sad Batman meme going around? Yes. That's That's my pose when I think we have to review that. We'll get there, I guess, in a few years. But <laughs> yeah. The first half of this movie, he is pivotal. Pivotal. <laughs> For the first half of this movie, he's pivotal. James Avery, yes. He's got his long, scraggly, greasy hair, and he's shooting up into a vein. like James McAvoy. I don't feel like I... James McAvoy, James Avery, James McAvoy. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, he's in this, <laughs> Uncle Phil. Yeah, he could have been in the back where somewhere. That came from. I mean, there were a lot of people. On <laughs> he's the dead. Yeah, I don't know where oh. that came from. <laughs> I, I guess it started with Mission Impossible with Tom Hanks, like having to catch his sweat before it hits the sensors on the floor. Tom Cruise. Rogue, we got with her powers. I I don't think she's touching Iceman there with her skin. I thought she kissed him. She didn't kiss him. No, no you're just no, imagining that. I I paid close attention. That's your weird uh, X Men fan fiction you're thinking of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just this, and yeah, you 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 said it, Arnie. This feels like too much of a bow on. The no, I said the opposite. I said you said that. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you, well, you said what I meant. I'm agreeing with your term. Yes, let me rephrase that then.